Welcome to episode 77 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host Russ over here. And this is Mike over here. And we're face to face. We are in the, in the I want to say the man cave. We're the in the, uh, the mountain lair. The mountain lair. On a rainy day, but we're nice and dry and well lubricated That's as right. well. Speaking of which, I got to open this um, bottle of water. Okay, I'll open mine too. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Oh, oh, they, oh there's gas in here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I usually have like regular water for the... Um, podcast simply it's because silent. not only that but it kind of it kind of lubricates the old uh, vocal cords a little better i think this kind of dries them out so we haven't done a face-to-face i think since episode 50 maybe. probably yeah the uh celebratory yeah. 50th anniversary in february that's which right. is also our first anniversary yeah yeah that's coming up soon too but we've got some extra time in the summer here, so yep. uh, we're doing this face-to-face, and we're going to celebrate afterwards. And we're here in Japan where it's raining a lot, yeah, it's which raining is unusual. It's yeah. unusual. Usually it's very hot and humid and sunny. Yeah, a little drier. Yeah. But anyway, it's been a uh, fun week. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, go back, uh, released just a couple days before, was our interview number five. It's released as a bonus episode with uh, Alto... Sax superhero Rudresh Mahantapa. Mm-hmm. It's to get ready for his upcoming dates at Smoke Jazz Club in New York. That's going to be the 25th. 25th to 28th. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Okay. Uh, so if you're in the New York area and you hear this, uh, make sure you uh, go down there. It'll be awesome. It He's a great player. Yeah, he's a great player. And a really nice guy, too. Yeah. Also this week, uh, <laughs> I've upped our Facebook skills and uh, found out- In the jazz category, anyway. Yeah, classical people, category. where are you? Where are you hanging out there? Come on. Yeah. They're, they're a whole different like business model in classical music. i got to work this out. Anyway, for our uh, previous regular episode, uh, Essential Organs, that featured Ronnie Foster with his comeback reboot release and Brian Charette, Pat Bianchi, they all sent us thank yous. Thank so, you, guys. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, it was really nice to hear from you because we- we love your music, and we're happy to hear from you. Yeah, that's right. I just want to point out that I did I did buy the the Ronnie Foster and the uh, well Brian Charette knows this the Brian Charette CD. So right. uh, there you go, you got a sale out of that too because yeah. I really enjoyed those albums a lot. Yeah. And I would buy the Pat Bianchi CD if there was one. Put one out, Pat, because yeah, I have out. some of your of your older ones. Yeah. So. And, uh, well, yeah, because there was a mystery in that episode, too. Yes. On the, uh, well, that's on the Cellar Live, Corey Weeds' label. Yeah. And uh, we found out that your CD and my uh, Deezer listings weren't matching up. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, I think we've got to the bottom of it. We, we figured that out live on the podcast while we were doing the podcast. And it turns out, so I wrote to um, uh, on the Bandcamp site and to Brian Charette and Corey Weeds wound up answering. I guess mm-hmm. he handles the email. He's he's actually the tenor saxophonist on the album too, as well as being the label um, sort of um, owner. Owner, guess, yeah. yeah. And uh, it took a while because at first he, well, I shouldn't even tell you this because it'll just confuse people. There was a little confusion at first, but he wrote back and confirmed that the track names on streaming and online in general are the right order. So, um, Unmasked is the last track, and Upstairs is the fifth track. And the CD got switched. So if you have the CD, as I do, and I was listening... Now, the thing is, we never would have noticed this otherwise, because 
That's I right. happen to like Brian Charette's playing a lot. He's an organ player. And I bought the CD ahead of time. So I, ha- I happen to have it. So we found that out. Right. So if you have the CD, you want to... The, the track order, the music is all in the same order as it is on streaming. But the um, the CD has the tracks mislabeled. Yeah. So uh, Unmasked... No, un- Upstairs is track five and Unmasked is track nine or the last track, whatever that is. There, there it go. is. Mystery Solved. Mystery Solved. Moving yeah. on. Yeah. Well... This week, uh, we're going to be a little bit uh, outside of the normal realm yeah, we of are. expertise here. Our, our ship got blown off course. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be uh, venturing into some uh, world music influences Kind here, of. World music bit. influence, yeah. I think. Yeah, Not quite world music. Right. But, uh, and some poetry, too. Well, yeah, poetry was basically our guide, and that was the, the starting point, and then uh, Russ added the uh, jazz after that. Yeah. All right, so my... Um, poetry thing was I, I figured um, I had two albums one of them featured poems of Dante the Italian poet the the Italian national poet really we may as well say and uh, poems of Rumi so I figured we just kind of go in that sort of direction right and then mm. in the jazz there's some South African uh, influenced music yeah. that also has a poetry connection so right. kind of ties in uh, for something a little bit different from what we usually do yeah. uh, before we get into all of this music, I want to remind everyone that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist that's going to be all the music in one place on Deezer, our preferred streaming music platform. You can also follow us there in the podcast. Just look for Adult Music Podcast. You get all the playlists and the podcast pop up. Now, if you don't see the full description or a list on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, and it's easy to follow all the links for this and past episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you follow or subscribe on whatever platform or app you listen to us on. And if you just take a moment, give us a ranking or write a short review, that also helps us get listed in the recommendations, gets us new listeners, which makes us happy when our audience increases. You can also find us now on Facebook, our page there, been more active lately, can leave a message or comment there. Uh, You want to contact us directly with any comments or questions. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, and uh, making us happy also makes the uh, musicians we talk about happy now too. Because uh, if they're listen, if you're listening to our podcast and you know following it, then they're going to get more listeners too. And that's everybody's, right. um, and really, that's why we're doing this. Really, we just want to yeah. make the music we listen to and like a little more um, popular. Yeah, it'd be yeah. nice to help you know up and coming artists and international artists mm. on smaller labels where a lot of the real creative and adventurous things happen. Uh, get a wider audience so right. people know about their music. Yeah. It's, you know, in this sea of streaming things that are available, it's yeah. really hard to plot a course and find things. So I take time every day to do that, and I'm happy to share that with other, you know, eager listeners around the world. So I hope that we can uh, move towards that goal every week. Yeah, speaking of uh, plotting a course, let's start ours. Yes. <laughs> right, so um, this week, the uh, for, I mentioned Dante, and that's going to be our first. This was a really unique uh, release that I kind of latched onto with my love for all things Italian. <laughs> and this is um, an album called, This is we're in the classical section of the uh, podcast now, and uh, this album is called Venite a Intender 
music on Dante's verses. So it's all music by composers that set Dante's verses to music. Now, this interested me because being a big fan of Dante and Italian poetry and mm. literature in general, um, I really wanted to hear these settings. And they get me a little more familiar with Dante's verses because um, he, he wrote a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, you're a scholar, sure. It's kind of hard to keep track of it all. Anyway, the... Uh, uh, the performers here, Mirko Palazzi, on he's the not on bass, he's a bass singer. Mm. He's got a very low voice, so we have a vocalist and Marco Scolastra on piano. And this is on the, I guess it would be pronounced Urania Records. Americans would say Urania Records label, which is an independent Italian label founded in 1998. It's been around for a while. This is the first time they're featuring on our podcast. Hmm. Um, I don't know much about them, except that they've released this album, which has some uh, pretty impressive artwork on the cover too. It's sort of a, there's a picture of Dante there and there's a little illustration, I guess, of um, something from the Divine Comedy. And it's against a brick red background. Yeah, <laughs> It's pretty attractive. Nice artwork anyway. Appropriate for this release. Okay, so anyway, let's uh, go through this. The first track is um, by Gaetano Donizetti. So we know him as a, one of the great bel canto opera composers. And um, this is um, his setting of Il Conte Ugolino. It's uh, called La Bocca Solevo dal Fiero Pasto, which means uh, his mouth uplifted from his grim meal, which is a line from... Uh, the 33rd canto of Dante's Inferno. So this is like the Ooh. almost lowest circle of hell. It might be the lowest circle of hell, but there's one more canto after this where mm. we we meet um, the, the worst offenders in the entirety of human history, except for now. Because <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like people are worse. A few more years. <laughs> yeah, a few more years. But uh, yeah, they, they feature... Um, who's it? Brutus, Cassius, and Judas, who are at the very lowest circle of hell, along with Satan himself. That's where he's at, he is. Anyway, this is verses 1 through 84 of Canto 33 in Inferno. Uh, let me say that again. Verses 1 through 84. That's a, 84 verses. That means... That this, it's a long track. This yeah. is going to be yeah. a long track. Okay, sure. And it tells the whole story of Conte Ugolino, which I'm going to have to tell you a little bit about, too. In a historical set of circumstances, truly worthy of the spoken mirror quality of Byzantine and Italian politics, Ugolino, Count Ugolino, who was a historical person, as is pretty much everybody in um, uh, the Divine Comedy. They're people, some of them are people Dante knew that mm. we wouldn't know about from history except for this poem. Ugolino was accused of treason, and uh, he was accused of treason, uh, whether he actually committed it or not is um well it's not really questionable but it's it's, <laughs> it's so complicated just i don't know if you've ever studied like ancient roman or like especially byzantium the history of byzantium just the the crazy situations that occur this is this is one of them anyway the basic story is he was accused of treason and he winds up in the ice of the second ring of the lowest circle of the inferno which is reserved for betrayers of kin country guests and benefactors so betrayers. Dante mm. didn't like betrayers, basically. Um, he is entrapped in ice up to his neck in the same hole with his betrayer, Archbishop Ruggeri. There are a lot of really church officials in the <laughs> Inferno. <laughs> you, you, you think um, 
you know that they're you think of the church as being corrupt now forget about it it was corrupt back <laughs> then okay this is the 1300s all right or the 1200s really archbishop ruggieri had left ugolino to starve to death in a prison tower he just locked him and his children in there and threw away the key which is pretty horrible and the poem really gets graphic about this and ugolino's punishment is to be locked in this ice forever and to be forever gnawing at Ruggieri's skull so he gets some closure for the betrayal that he himself suffered so he's getting something to eat now um the historical details of the reasons given for Ugolino and Ruggieri's punishment in the Divine Comedy are a bit obscure in historically in the poem Ugolino is unforgiving like everyone in the inferno this is basically what lands people in the inferno is their egotistical Mm. Uh, inability to forgive anything that happened to them. So keep that in mind. It's a good, um, the, the, the entire poem, if you want to spend the next uh, several years of your life reading it <laughs> and really studying it, uh, is a good sort of moral lesson, I think. He kind of, I think uh, Dante had his, his head on straight. That, that's really why he's there. He's unforgiving. Um, there's a line after he watches his three children die of starvation. So he's still alive and his children die of starvation, where Ugolino says, Poscia più che il dolor potel digiuno, which means then hunger did what sorrow could not do. Okay, so what this is, is there's, there's this really kind of morbid and sort of um, maudlin part of the poem where Ugolina's children say, you brought us into the world, Dad. Why don't you just eat us? Now, <laughs> this may seem like kind of awful to us, but 19th century audiences would have loved this because they were into like death and decay and all of these things. So it's perfect for this piece really. And um, apparently, at least according to Dante, Ugolino ate his dead children. Oh. <laughs> hey, that's the idea. And uh, popular culture such as painting uh, chooses um, to show this. It's because it's a really dramatic, awful thing that would excite the, uh, the more morbid parts right. of our, character anyway that line gets set here too there's a there's a line that's similar to this that's a little more positive that we'll get to in a different piece later okay so this track is 16 minutes long first thing that needs to be said the sound on this recording is pretty much as uh, dry as uh, the feet of a desert nomad uh, there's no <laughs> reverb on it at all and it really sounds like you had mentioned russ to me earlier that it sounds like it was recorded in a rehearsal Hall. recital small recital room or something yes yeah. yeah. like a practice room so yeah. it kind of sounds like someone's playing an upright piano well it might not be an upright piano it very well may be a grand but the sound is so dead that yeah. um you don't really get a feeling of the you don't really get any help with the lushness no, of the voice no. or the any of the beauty of the the piano playing or anything like that the voice actually sounds very good it's, it's powerful, a nice deep yeah, it's bass voice is powerful and it, it sounds like it navigates uh bass voices tend to be very heavy but it sounds like it navigates this material quite well so the performances are very good i feel like they could have gotten a better haul at least or something for the recording anyway so anyway but the, the year does adjust so mm. you'll get used to this if you to it. I would suggest uh, listening to it free on <laughs> streaming first before yeah. you decide to buy this. Now, I bought the CD simply because I love Dante's poetry and I wanted a musical mm-hmm. record of some of it because it gets me a little closer to it. Okay, we do hear every detail of the piano's playing. This is one of the benefits of having a really dry acoustic. Um, it doesn't sound like there's any pedal on the piano either. <laughs> no, not really much. It really is very yeah. dry. Um, the bass voice is very present, but the, dry, the dryness doesn't do his voice favors 
The voice does sound big and powerful, though. The bass sounds... Um, this is Mirko. Um, what's his name? Palazzi. Okay, he sounds like he's panned pretty far to the right, like he's standing mm-hmm. to the right of the microphone. When he really should be in the center. Um, I kind of... <laughs> I want to be the engineer on this recording. I want to get in there and kind of fix this up. Uh, the dryness of the recording does bring out the dramatic impact of the performance, though. Um, there's nothing to luxuriate in sound quality wise. So we're stuck with the text and the music and that's not really a problem. It's a good performance. It's nice to hear a bass voice in full recital. It's very rare. The music itself is pretty interesting, or at least for me, the poem was cause uh, it's, and the music Donizetti sets here constantly changes profile to reflect Ugolino's shifting moods in his narrative. Palazzi is admirably sensitive to these changes and the deepness of his voice gives the character a bit of authority in his declamation. Basses make us pay attention. Right. They kind of, there's something authoritative about a really deep mm-hmm. man's voice. You know, you kind of, so he sounds like he's important. And it, that, that adds a lot to this character, who was a count after all. And he was kind of a major player in these um, civil wars that were happening in these mm. um, city states of uh, Italy at the time. Yeah, so he he puts this across quite well, and this is really uh, good uh, romantic stuff. I should also say, Donizetti, and really, this would be true of um, Rossini as well. We'll get to him soon. He doesn't really put much invention into the piano part. The piano part is is accompanying the singer, right? And uh, he's giving you the, you know, he'll lighten his tone and he'll um, give you the the chords and things like that. But there's nothing really interesting about the piano mm-hmm. part and i kind of feel for the pianist here um <laughs> we'll get to hear a little bit more from him later but this is really all about the bass and it's and the emotion and the beautiful bel canto line now this is a more dramatic line so um but anyway pretty excellent puts the um the sordid story across mm. okay anyway track two again donizetti amor can nulo amato amar perdona Perdona. Sorry. I'm <laughs> Love that exempts no beloved from loving. This is um, a, a piece called Terzina Dantesca from 1843, which kind of indicates there were two others. <laughs> I really mm. would like to hear those by Donizetti. Anyway, this is about um, Francesca da Rimini. Now, you might know this name from the very famous um, Tchaikovsky uh, tone poem. And uh, there's an opera by Zandonai about mm. her, too. She's in the Inferno as well, but she's up higher. She's in Canto 5 in a higher circle of hell that isn't as bad as the one <laughs> we just came from. A story that captivated the 19th century romantic mind. This piece is uh, more lyrical and light phrasing in this from this rather heavy-toned voice, which is nice to hear. Uh, he manages enough sensitivity to put this across, I'd say. This doesn't sound like a voice with a big arsenal of shadings, uh, but no bother. The piece is very brief. I'm going to have more to say about Francesca da Rimini later because it's another piece. Mm. Uh, well, in fact, right now, uh, track three, Gioacchino Rossini. Everybody knows him from the Barber Seville. We just talked about yeah. him last week. Another piece called Francesca da Rimini. This is um, a recitative from 1848. 
Um, so Francesca was an actual person, and she was a noblewoman from Ravenna, which is where Dante's body is now. Mm. That, that, that's a whole story in itself. She's known for having been murdered by her husband, Giovanni Malatesta. Great name. Malatesta Testa. means bad head, <laughs> which could mean yeah. a lot of things, I guess. Good name for a murderer, yeah. though, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. Upon his discovery of Francesca's affair with his brother, Paolo mm. Malatesta. Boy, Italians. Let me tell you <laughs> the things they get up to. Anyway, Paolo was having an affair with uh, jo- his brother Giovanni's wife, Francesca. And she was Dante's contemporary. I don't know that he knew her personally, but he probably heard the story. Um, real tabloid stuff. In the Divine Comedy, she's in the second circle of the Inferno, reserved for the lustful, where she and Paolo are buffeted by violent winds. And we hear those winds in Tchaikovsky's um, tone poem. So you can go to that if you like. Uh, in a similar manner than they allowed themselves to be swept away by their passions. So your punishment in, in the Inferno mm. kind of is symbolic of the reason right. you're there. Which is why I love this poem so much. It's really, really fantastic. The images that Dante comes up with. Um, their relationship began innocently while reading a story about Lancelot Dulac, the Arthurian hero. Paolo was aroused and kissed Francesca. And then they got it on. The poem doesn't say that, but <laughs> we know that. <laughs> the poem says it in a much more amazing way. Actually, I like the way Francesca says it. She says, that day we read no further. Ooh, why not, Francesca? Mm. We know why. Okay. <laughs> the Italian is, um, if you want to say this to your friends, quel giorno più non vi leggemmo avante. Mm. So you can hit your friends with that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, her real sin here is... Why is she there? Because people would do this today. Her real sin is not having agency. She blames love for her sin, not herself. Mm. Okay? So, in other words, she sees... So, otherwise, she'd be in purgatory. She would, you know, just... You know, so anyway. In other words, she sees herself as a helpless victim of circumstance. So, she's kind of like Don Quixote and Madame Bovary, both of whom were inspired to make some bad decisions by reading romantic stories. Anyway... (laughs) <laughs> this particular piece is done in a waltz rhythm. Uh, traditional bass note followed by two chords. Dun, 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 that kind of thing. Uh, the melodies what counts here, though. As passion rises, so do the arpeggios and the piano accompaniment. Very clever. Uh, Mr. Rossini. The last famous line is sung rather triumphantly. Like, we read no further that day. Like, it was a good thing. And So she's not penitent. Mm. That's really what it comes down to with the people in the Inferno. They're just kind of, they think they did the right thing and uh, they just don't get it. Anyway, I would have written um, this setting differently, I think. But uh, it's a nice, you know, it's well done and well sung too by uh, Palazzi. Okay, the next part is one of my favorite poems uh, or one of my favorite parts of the Divine Comedy set by Filippo Marchetti, La Pia. And uh, this refers to Pia de Tolome, who's in uh, Purgatory. This has one of the most famous and most beautiful lines in the entire Divine Comedy. And there's a lot of it, so that's saying something. She was a noblewoman from Siena, near Florence, who was murdered by her husband, like Francesca <laughs> da Rimini. <laughs> Seems that this happened a lot back in the day. And she's in Canto Five of Purgatorio. This is very interesting. So there's like a, hmm. there's a sort of parallel. So Francesca's in the Inferno, Canto 5, and Pia is in Canto 5 of Purgatory. 
in the place at the base of the mountain where souls who repented at the time of their violent deaths are found. So really, in a way, Pia is saying what Francesca right. should have done. People in purgatory, incidentally, will eventually get into heaven. They just have to pay off their sinful debt. Her story has one of the most beautiful lines. She says, okay, so she's murdered by her husband. And she was born in Siena, and she died in Maremma. And uh, what she says is, um, Siena mi fe, disfecha mi Maremma. All those beautiful M's. Wow. Even in English translation, it sounds great. Siena made me, Maremma unmade me. So she's also forgiving her husband by saying that Maremma, not her husband, was responsible for her death. So she's not blaming mm. her husband, whereas... The uh, on the other side, Francesca is blaming the right. book for her committing the sin. Okay, so she's not laying this kind of guilt on her husband. Um, she keeps it all impersonal, and we also never find out what she's done to be murdered. Like, did, did her husband just kill her? Did she do mm. something? To we don't know because she doesn't mention it. She's forgiving. Okay. Anyway, this particular piece sounds ominous, though. I don't hear this character the way that Marchetti sets her here, actually. The piano plays tremolos throughout with some melodic shadings in the right hand, and the bass sings it pretty straight. Um, I like this one for the poetry only, really. The mm. setting is, eh, it's okay. Track five. Ciro Pinsuti, Beatrice. Ah, oh, Beatrice. Dante's great love, who he never uh, kind of really even... We don't even know if he met her very often. He oh. just saw her. Okay, anyway, the text is from the 26th chapter of Vita Nova, which is um, a sort of autobiographical um, book by Dante, which includes some of his early poems. And the form of this piece by Pinsuti is a da capo aria, but it's hidden under a dense series of accents produced by prolonging certain sounds and by clever dynamics. I thought this was rather a matter-of-fact setting for such a beautiful poem. The bass gets to show some tone in his long-held vowels, but I don't feel like there's much interpretation of the words going on. Surely some sentiment can be drawn from this, giving the text. I say this because the text is sung twice, and Palazzi does nothing to alter his tone for the second, mm. you know, to become more sensitive or something uh, for the second uh, time it's repeated. The piano is fine, but his part really doesn't rise above accompaniment in the composition. Okay, next we get two pieces by Francesco Morlacchi. Uh, this is the uh, title track, Venita Intender Li sospiri miei. This is a sonnet by Dante from 1835, and it features austere but gentle declamation of the text that winds quietly above an archaic professional, processional, sorry, not professional, processional succession of arpeggiated chords. This is in uh, Vita Nova. It's a lament at the loss of the poet's lady. Could be Beatrice, but we don't know. It could just be any woman. It's pretty brief, but sung well. By now, I have to say, though, we've been hearing the piano accompanying and the bass singing, mm -hmm. and we've pretty much heard the bass's entire technique, and he's getting a bit wearing by now because he's not really showing any sort of um, you know, extra technique or depth that we haven't already heard. The recording doesn't help either. Track seven, Francesco Morlacchi. This is sort of like a bookends the first track. This is another long um, setting of the Ugolino mm. chapter of the Inferno. And this is called a declamation with music. And this is written in 1832. The first track, okay, but this setting is more declaimed than sung, but it is sung. It just airs on the declamatory side, let's say. 
or it leans towards the declamatory side. Palazzi is more in his element when he's being dramatic, I think. This is the bass. And uh, this is a dramatic text and piece, as was the Donizetti. So he sounds better in these. Mm. I think he's he's more of a dramatic bass. Uh, he doesn't. He does the tender, the more tender tracks well, but not. You know, I'm not really being terribly moved by them. Let's say uh, this is another 15 minute track. This and the first track make up more than half of the entire album. <laughs> so we're hearing a lot of Ugolino here. Uh, the pianist gets to step out a bit in this setting with some dramatic rapid scales in the second half, while when Ugolino's children are offering to let him eat them. Uh, there's some good contrast between this and more plaintive lamenting music afterwards. All right, next we get up to uh, a set of uh, four, well, there are five tracks, but the four sonnets from Vita Nova by Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, a 20th century composer. And this is a relief because now we finally get to hear some... Uh, interesting piano. Interesting piano. Yeah. Okay, He's not just accompanying here. The piano is really part of these pieces now. This was written in 1926. It's Castelnuovo Tedesco's Opus 41. The first one is called... Uh, the first piece, Cavalcando L'Altrier... Per un camino. Wow. <laughs> La Trier, the other day. That's kind of, mm. it's an abbreviated version of it. Anyway, riding the other day along a track is what it means. And um, all four of these sonnets are neoclassical in compositional style. Uh, this particular movement is ambiguous. The text alludes to a knight's encounter with a fleeting love. It's matched by danceable rhythms tinged with a rather ironic melancholy. It's enjoyable and a bit of a change of pace from what we've heard before. Uh, we're hearing an excellent composer for the piano here. As I mentioned, the piano has some expressive, even touching lines to play, and Scolastra finally comes into his own, playing them sensitively. We get to hear him a bit. Donizetti and Rossini, of course, wrote primarily for voices, so they didn't think this way. I enjoyed uh, Castelnuovo Tedesco's setting, and his chords especially, a lot here. Okay, the second uh, sonnet, Nel Yoki Porta la Mia Donna Amore. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> okay. In in her eyes, my woman carries love. Mm. <laughs> I wish someone would say that to me. <laughs> anyway, uh, in this and the previous piece, I'm pretty impressed with Palazzi's singing. Uh, perhaps it's the variation in color in the piano that's making him come across more appealing. I think he's being mm-hmm. more inspired here. All right, so he's good here. Uh, the next one uh, is, uh, this is the third of the four sonnets. Tanto gentile e tanto oneste, onesta pare. This is a famous line from mm-hmm. uh, Dante. Uh, this is, um, we heard this text earlier in Ciro Pinsuti's Beatrice, but again, this has a more well-planned piano accompaniment and it brings the text more to life. Palazzi is good in this neoclassical context. This is the second time we're hearing this um, text, which I really like a lot, by the way. And the fourth of the sonatas is De Peregrini Che Pensosi Andate, which is a darker, more dramatic, more rolled chord based accompaniment with Palazzi sounding in tone like an Old Testament prophet in his admonitory tone. The, the title means um, pilgrims who, um, De is like, eh, he's like dismissing them. Uh, pilgrims who, um, with deep thoughts, go on their pilgrimage. And mm. it kind of, it kind of says that they're. They're not doing it right, basically. (laughs) The last track, the 12th track, is by Castelnuovo Tedesco. It's called uh, Sera. 
which means evening, Opus 23 from 1921. This is from uh, the Divine Comedy again, from Purgatorio, Canto 8. And this reminds us of Purgatory with its melancholy image of the sunset and with the sound of bells coming from afar, which Castel Nuovo Tedesco makes us hear in the piano. Starts in the bass's deepest range, always appealing. And uh, Palazzi, the bass, manages an appealingly ominous tone there and rises through the vocalist's range to around the beginning of his upper range. The piano is playing bell-like chords. It's a lovely setting and an appealing ending to an album that was really a mixed bag, to be honest. What I liked about this album the most was the texts. Well, I guess that would be inevitable, especially for right. someone like me. That, that's I think that's what the big appeal is going to be for listeners. If you're really interested in Dante, you might want to have this. You don't get to hear Dante's poetry sung often, and I was happy to hear them. But there's so many musical issues with this release that I can't recommend it to anyone not interested in Dante's poetry. The recording, as I said, is dry. It won't entice many listeners. It's really more of like the kind of thing that academics would listen to to study. It does give the music a more austere, dramatic profile, though. Again, that's something more for academics. Um, the bass, Mirko Palazzi, has a solid dramatic voice and is therefore at his best in the two Count Ugolino pieces, uh, which are the centerpieces of this program. And I would say also the Castelnuovo Tedesco pieces, too. He sounds great there. And while he's expressive in the way he can enlighten his voice to express sadness and remorse... He doesn't have enough tools in his technique to really put these pieces across, except for the Ugolino ones, as dramatically as they could be. I did enjoy the Castelnuovo Tedesco settings at the end. They're more fully realized for the piano, along with the vocalist. More chamber-like, where most of the rest sounds like reductions for piano. And for fans of Dante and music set to his poems only, like me, I'm happy to have this album. So, But I'm going to say uh, only a limited recommendation there. Yeah, not being able to appreciate the meaning of the Italian personally, uh, it got <laughs> to be. It's, it's not hard for easy for me either. These are 13th century <laughs> yeah. poems. They're really, it's really old Italian. <laughs> yeah, it got to be a little bit um, samey by midway through. Although I was impressed with Palazzi's powerful voice and commanding presence, especially on some of the darker, serious kind of lines uh, there. I suppose you can follow along uh, with translations of the poetry so you can understand exactly what's going on. Yeah, as you explained, the piano is kind of boring for most of the earlier pieces. Again, not because of the pianist, though, because no, of the No, it's settings. a parse. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. all about the voice yeah. and the text, really. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the, the music is yeah. designed to highlight the meaning in the text. However, when we got to the end, the uh, Casa Nuovo Tedesco, things brightened up for me, too. And mm-hmm. I found that yeah, the piano parts are interesting harmonically, a little bit more other movement there too. And also the vocals seem to respond uh, in a little bit kind of more lively manner uh, with the way those parts move. So yeah, the ending pieces were a little bit uh, musically more satisfying for me. All right. So anyway, that's our, um, our look into the past. Our next two classical albums are all contemporary music, although... Hmm. of old forms, which kind of sets sort of, you know, kind of follows sort of a theme for us today. The next one is um, a guitarist that we like a lot, Ignacio Lussardi di Monteverde. Last year we heard his uh, Canto del Gitano album and liked it a lot. That's an interesting one. Yeah. And uh, his newest album is the one we're going to talk about now. It's called Flamenco Passato e Presente. Lussardi di Monteverde is a guitarist. He was born in Buenos Aires and his family is 
Argentinian Italian. So we still have. See, we're, we're kind of like <laughs> fading from Italy into right. Argentina here into something else. How clever. And the label is Naxos World. Yeah, and these are a good deal. This one, yeah. uh, you can get what was like 1,400 yen. I bought this. Yeah. and I, have the, I bought this one too. Yeah. I, the earlier one, which I bought last year, and that's 999 yen. Yeah. So that's less than $10 US, yeah. $8, and yeah. like $12 for the other ones. So yeah, really good deals from Naxos. And he is also producing the sound, I believe, on both. I haven't read the notes on the new one because I just received it, but the right. old one, which was, I believe, partially recorded in India. He was on sort of a Silk Road trip there, mm -hmm. and he was in charge of all the sound production. And it's amazing sounding recording, this one as well. Yeah. Uh, so it really stands out and a really nice uh, bargain from Naxos World. So. Yeah. Let's... um. Also, we were just talking about Dante, which is like, 700 years ago flamenco it turns out is really old too as sure. I, I actually did read the book <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just as well because i got a lot more out of this now these are all pieces by the way um they're all flamenco they're not all flamenco but they're all sort of tinged from like spanish music and uh they're all written by lusardi monteverde himself right. so they're all original pieces unlike Encanto canto which i think was kind of um some by him i don't remember really i have to there again. was other influences there, Indian music. Actually, and... you may have written all those too. I'm not sure. Could be, yeah. But he did write all these. That's the key point for today. The, the, the word that the booklet uses about flamenco, he says it kindled in the 11th century. Now, they don't mean the uh, Barnes & Noble kindled <laughs> in this case. That word has really been hmm. kind of killed by modern technology but he doesn't want to say originated i kind of get it it kind of because mm. it was kind of like in these little parts and then it just ignited maybe right. ignited would have been a better word uh in the 11th century when nomadic groups from the rajasthan and punjab regions of india traveled to the iberian peninsula sparking a worldwide matrimony of indian folk music song and dance and byzantine moorish and jewish traditions now please these people um, who immigrated from India, we, we know who they are. They're the uh, the Romani people, oh, right. formerly known of as gypsies, which we don't. They don't want us to say anymore. I don't know. Anyway, but they're they're well known for music <laughs> making, and uh, we get some of that here. All of this, all of that, is included in the tradition we know as flamenco, Byzantine, Moorish, Jewish, Indian folk music, song and dance. It's it all just kind of goes in there and makes this totally new form. So Ignacio gives some highly detailed notes about what's happening in each composition. So I'm going to use them a lot. Newcomers to flamenco, sort of like me. I mean, I've been listening to flamenco uh, quite a bit, but I didn't really know a whole lot about it. I just like the sound of it, really. I love flamenco. Yeah. Always have. Mm. But it's a it's a type of music. Well, I think all mm. music is like is like this, but you have to get inside the culture that produces the music yeah. to understand the forms and elements of it. And so yeah, to really feel it the way, yeah, you don't really feel it the way they do, but you, you do come closer to that when you right. start picking up these sort of elements of the culture. You know, you the know? things that happen in flamenco and the organization of it are often surprising to me. A song will start out, you know, and I think it's fully experienced when you have a dancer as well right. there. And suddenly it seems someone stands up and bursts out into song. Right. It's already been going on for a few minutes. And, right. you know, things happen, I'm sure, for a reason that I don't know. Yeah. And all of the rhythmic elements and different dance parts of it have names and terminology 
that I don't know. Either. Right, right. All I know is I really like it and find it interesting. I'll, I'm going to step out and uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say when they they don't necessarily have to burst out into song. They just kind of feel inspired to at that time and they just do it. I don't know. I think so. Could it's be. sort of like in yeah. the in in church when like you know people they're inspired by the and Holy the Spirit, Spirit to, comes upon them. Yeah, yeah. they say something about you know. Great. I, I think it sort of has a lot to okay. do with that actually. It's the same sort of thing. Right. I don't want to tie it to a religion or anything like that because if anything it would be it would, it would be I think it would be more Muslim oriented than Christian although mm. it would be both I think mm. okay so anyway track one Moron and La Frontera and there's always a word in uh, parentheses and this one says Buleria and the words in parentheses in the title indicate the kind of toque T-O-Q-U-E which is means the rhythm type that the piece is going to use. And uh, more literally, toque means touch, touch technique, uh, related to the Italian word toccata. So mm. how are you going to touch the instrument? But I think it's more, according to his notes, it's more has to do with the rhythmic form the piece is going to take. So you'll see all those, um, if you look on your um, streaming, you'll see all those words and that's what it means. Anyway, toque in flamenco refers to the particular rhythmic form used in the music. It's accompanied by hand clapping, foot stomping, and castanets. And buleria, which is what this one is, is from the Spanish Romani or Gitanos. Gitanos is Spanish for gypsies, mm-hmm. all right, uh, from Jerez de la Frontera in Andalusia. Um, it's dramatic, often ending in a joyous gathering. The scene depicted is of singers and guitar players cheerfully socializing and feasting together around a table. Okay, so this is a happy piece, mm-hmm. basically, is what you, you need to take away from it. Uh, celebrating the centuries of music that have endured Throughout the Gitano families, uh, intricate foot tapping is prominent in this toque, along with dexterity, speed, and absolute control of the rhythm. Uh, this title refers to the city Moron, called Mororum by the Romans, the ancient Romans, and En la Frontera refers to the border with Granada. So in this piece, the guitar strums chords on each beat while hand claps provide an ostinato syncopated rhythm, which the guitar, when it starts picking, falls into. You can occasionally hear shouts from the ensemble as well. They're kind of in the background in the mix, though. The sound is clear. The guitar is right up front. (laughs) He knows who the star is. Yeah, on this whole recording. (laughs) And hand claps are very present and the voices in the background on the rare occasions when they are heard. Uh, The guitar part sounds improvisatory for the most part, adhering to the lively rhythm. There's impressive virtuosity in this, but I don't really get from um Sadi Monteverde the real explosive passion that you get from you know the the really famous uh, flamenco guitar players people like Paco de Lucia and people like that the track fades at the end too which kind of dry, <laughs> always drives me crazy in music I don't mind it in popular music right. and rock music but uh I don't know when you in live music I think you got to end the piece mm. all right I, I think about like if I'm writing a short well I guess you do kind of sh- you can fade out a short story. It doesn't resolve. It just kind of ends, right. you know? But I feel like you could do that in music too. You just play an unresolved note and then that's the end. Mm. I don't know. Anyway. So anyway, that's going to be the case really with this whole album. The guitar playing is fantastic. Um, uh, Lusara di Monteverde has a, a real, a good presence, a great technique. He, he's got passion, but if we're used to hearing like flamenco played by the greats, he's not, he doesn't have that, the fiery passion of that. So he's going to be, 
I don't want to say academic because it doesn't sound it does sound lively, but he's he's taking more of like a, a scholar's approach, I think. And they're his original pieces too. Right. So I feel like he's he's they're more like compositions for him. Yeah, I feel like he's done a really nice balance of mm. traditional elements that sound extremely flamenco, but also some of the newer flamenco that incorporates, you know, yeah. more jazzy things, uh with especially when he uses the bass yeah. uh actively in some of the more uh, modern sounding pieces on this album. It's really a mix and a nice balance of both. So you, you get a sense that his ideas and the elements are firmly rooted in tradition, but he's also bringing in uh, sort of modern things that flamenco has developed into. And it makes it an interesting, you know, listen. It doesn't sound like something you've heard before, right. but it reminds you of yeah. things you know. Okay. That sounds, that's good. And he's going to give us a lot of variety too. Okay. In uh, track two, uh, this is called Pregaria, Plegaria, I think, and it's a Seguiria. A Seguiria toque is from Jerez. It branched from a group of 18th century songs and dances called Seguadillas. If you listen to classical music, you probably know what those are from your Spanish composers. Um, this toque expresses sorrow, pain, and tragedy <laughs> and was created by Andalusian Gitanos. It's traditionally played in the Phrygian mode... That's um, flat two, second, third, sixth, and seventh mm-hmm. notes. If you take a C major scale, that would be D flat, E flat, what is it, A flat and B flat. Mm-hmm. With each musical round consisting of five counts that are summarized in 12 beats. So it's complicated, but not, if you understand it, it's not that complicated. Yeah. But um, it sounds complicated if you don't, not really too up on it. Uh, the title, Plegaria, means prayer. And this piece is written in memory of those who died during a COVID-19 pandemic, like Ignacio's brother, Santiago. And we'll hear more about him in track 10. So we'll talk more about him later. Um, this starts with uh, percussion playing a slow, syncopated rhythm. And once the guitar comes in, we get a strong sense of the musical colors of sadness this piece evokes. Ignacio gets a lot of tone out of his guitar. It's one of the great things about his playing that we really liked in hmm. this and his previous album. And here his instrument sounds temporally muted to fit the mood, perhaps due to his attack. Uh, the piece sounds more reflective than sad to my ear, but that may be in keeping with the tradition. I really don't know. There are some sudden chords that erupt out of the speakers, expressing passion at one part. I was like, there's another one of those, whoa, moments, yeah. you know? Anyway. Third track, Agua Brava, is a rumba. It means t- tempestuous waters, and rumba flamenca originated in the 19th century, so it's pretty new. Hmm. Uh, rumba is thought of as a there and back rhythm. Uh, in Spanish, oh boy, toque de ida y vuelta, due to its travels to the New World and back again, when it returned with Cuban rhythms and Latin American sounds. Okay, so rumba, we, th- in the, in a, right. we Americans think of it as Latin American, you know. But apparently it originated in uh, Spain or came back to Spain mm-hmm. as this. I don't... Okay. Uh, this piece is inspired by the sound of waves hitting the cliffs in Malaga in Spain. This is a livelier piece uh, than the previous. Very carefree and cheerful. It sounds almost like a uh, bossa nova. It sounds Brazilian to my ear. Hmm. Um, I don't know what the mode is in this one, but Phrygian would tend to be the uh, bossa nova mode with its flat second and uh, seventh. Yeah? Mm. I think. Yeah, this one is... Um... I found it, it's interesting, there's like interjections of flamenco, but the melody is more poppy sounding. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting uh, balance of those two different harmonic feelings. 
Yeah. At any rate, it's very appealing. Yeah. Uh, I liked it right away. Maybe it just gives me this kind of light, positive feeling. There's a light knocking percussion in the background, but the guitar is front and center, and occasional vocalizing far in the background can be heard. There's also a harmonica played by Adam Glasser that comes into accents certain notes in the chorus. It doesn't make much of an appearance on the track, uh, just coming in in a ghostly way from time to time. Mm. I really enjoyed Ignacio's... I'm going to just call him Ignacio because... Lusar de Monteverde. <laughs> takes a while. It takes a lot of my energy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Ignacio's playing on this uh, feel-good track is... is I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, the percussion on the track, by the way, is by Bernard Schimpelsberger. And I need to say that because every other time you hear percussion or anything else, hand clapping, it's all Ignacio Lusar de Monteverde. He literally does everything. Oh, wow. He's overdubbed himself... Huh. Uh, on the tracks and that could have something to do with some of the um, muted passion that right. we get because he's right. the studio will tend to take some of that away okay track four Medina Sindonia this is an air de tangos we know what a tango is the piece is a joyous interaction between Ignacio's flamenco guitar and the Carnatic musicians again uh, well here the Carnatic musicians he met while spending six months in India in early 2020 so these would be actual mm. Carnatic musicians I guess from the tradition also that uh, Rajesh yeah, Mahantapa, Mahantapa studied, told us, yeah, he studied told us about well. last week. Yeah. Wow. It's a very Arabic-sounding melody on this one as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the composition is based on the Indian raga Hari Kamboji, the 28th, I don't know what this is, the 28th Melakarta Ragam from the 72 Melakarta Ragam system, in case we have any Indian listeners. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll yeah, give you that out. for you. I we do have some. The, yeah. I don't know the system, so there you go. Uh, for those familiar with that, okay. It's similar to the Mixolydian mode, which has a flat seventh only. And the piece takes its uh, title from the Saudi Arabian city, city Medina and the biblical name uh, Sidonia. The tango flamenco rhythm is believed to have originated in Andalusia and traveled to South America. It's accented on beats two, three, and four with a heavy strum and a strict time. Um, it's hard to make out the Carnatic influence to me. Like you said, this mm. sounds pretty um, Arabic because the rhythm draws the ear with a lot of force. Um, we do hear a lot of droning bass chord on the occasion from the guitar, perhaps to set the mo mode's roots. There are there's a percussion on the track, which is Ignacio himself playing, overdubbing himself. Anyway, the rag pattern is completely transformed in this rhythmic environment, and the piece is a cheerful one. Next piece, Puente Romani, Rumba Andaluza. Uh, this has an influence by Carnatic Romani musicians and presents the symbolic bridge, Puente, that connected the East with the West centuries ago. Okay, when we hear Carnatic Romani, we, we mean Romani that are in Europe today. Uh, it's written in Rumba, the most recognizable flamenco mode, and uses the Andalusian cadence, or modern Phrygian mode, as well as kind of taking from the Indian raga Charukeshi and the sound of the Arab makam Nahawand. Makam is a mode. Right. All right. This one has a kind of jazzy feel yeah. to me. Yeah, it's a bit lower key performance than the previous one, but has an upbeat feel to it nonetheless. And there's some impressively fast runs on the guitar at points. Mostly this is a cheerful, carefree theme. Again, sounding like uh, to me like bossa nova, in a way. It's probably the, the flat second in the Phrygian mode that gives it the sound. Track six, Caleras del Prado Solea 
Por Bularias. This is a danceable track, and the roots of this piece are in the melodies of one of the purest forms of uh, Andalusian folk music, the cante yondo, or hondo. There's a J at the beginning. The deep or profound song. It's played in a 12-beat solea por bularias, which combines the standard chord patterns associated with the solea with the upbeat post of a bularias. The accents come on 3, 6, 8, 10, and 12 beats of the 12-beat pattern. The solea is known as one of the most fundamental tokes in flamenco guitar playing, and the piece was inspired by traveling fairs that occurred in small villages, which are still held today. The gathering of people at these fairs inspired the composition. So that's the feeling of people mm. being together. I, I guess he was, he must have been lonely during the uh, coronavirus. All <laughs> <It could laughs> these pieces yeah. about gatherings of mm. people. Anyway, this starts with a rolled chord. Uh, then the percussion comes in and we get some rapidly circling figures from the guitar. Uh, this piece comes across as more passionate and serious than the lighter music on tracks three and five. The piece features a lot of arpeggiating and circling figures and moves at a comfortable mid-tempo pace. Seventh track, Zambra Gitana, which is a copla andaluza, which is a Spanish song, a ballad that has a zarzuela, Andalusian folk and flamenco influences. This track presents variations on the Andalusian love poem Romance de Juan de Osunaf from the late 19th century, made popular by the singer Manolo Caracol. Uh, Zambra comes from the Arabic Zumra, meaning party, so the title means Romani party. Okay? Hmm. Uh, slow and with a Spanish feel in those descending patterns at the end of phrases, often a triplet. Nice ringing tone from Ignacio in this piece. There's also percussion, a kashishi, and a Middle Eastern drum uh, played by Ignacio. A kashishi. I should have looked up what that was. <laughs> Sensitively taken and satisfying. Track eight, a la orilla de la caleta, which is a canción. Orilla means shore, and this piece reflects the peaceful sound of the waves by the shore of caleta on the Mediterranean. It's an A major with a short modulations in it to the Phrygian mode. A favorite mode of Ignacio's apparently, giving this uh, calm bossa nova feel. It's not bossa nova. I shouldn't say it is. I'm going to confuse people with this, <laughs> but uh, it kind of it feels close to it from that. Okay. As the title and description would suggest, it's a calm and cheerful piece uh, played and captured by the recording with appealing clarity. The piece is driven by an arpeggiated figure that repeats throughout. Track nine, Por Una Cabeza, um, <laughs> which <laughs> means what you think it, well, it doesn't, yeah. It's an air de bulerias. It's an Argentine tango reinterpreted to, into the flamenco form of a bulerias. And the mm. song was written in 1935 by Carlos Gardel, very famous composer of uh, Argentine tangos, and La Pera. They were a songwriting team. It refers to a horse winning a race by the length of its head, oh. hence the title. Mm. <laughs> By a head. <laughs> okay. right. uh, there's an intro featuring some downward scalar runs ripped out of the instrument. Then it settles into something more song-like. The tango rhythm of the original song is slightly discernible, but this has been transformed into a bulerias pretty completely. Uh, the rhythm is carried along by an inquisitive repeating four-note pattern. Expressive playing here by Ignacio. Doesn't sound like a tango at mm -hmm. all. You could hear the original on um, YouTube, surely. Mm -hmm. And this last track, track 10, Hermano Santo, which is a taranta. This is um, 
the track I was talking about earlier, Ignacio Lusar de Monteverde's brother, Santiago, passed away in May 2021 due to COVID-19. And this piece is an homage to him. The Taranta style it employs is a solo guitar style, which originated in the Andalusian province of Almeria. They use dark, discordant melodies and open chords, echoing a sense of tragedy, deprivation, and sorrow. This piece has a toque libre, which means free rhythm, throughout. It starts on an appealing, arpeggiated, dark-sounding chord, and with an accented chord, it goes into a more meditative section with a melody and a repeated note in triplets. The piece is pretty free rhythmically, yet the melodic material and the repeating accompaniment give it shape, and it ends on an inconclusive discord. We're just left to go on with our day on that last note. Anyway, this album is beautifully performed and recorded as we sort of expected mm-hmm. when we saw that it came out because we remembered last year's Canto del Gitano, which was fantastic. And it's a deep dive into flamenco and it's different styles. It's almost a little bit of a flamenco course as well. Yeah, you get to learn about the elements. Right. I really enjoyed that about it too. Ignacio's got a good feel for the idiom and an appealing tone. I personally missed a bit of the fire that some guitarists, like uh, Ignacio's inspiration, Paco de Lucia, bring to flamenco music. But of course, you can always go seek them out. They're, those recordings are everywhere. This album really isn't about that, though. It's more of an exploration of different styles. And it's certainly appealing to those who like the sound of the guitar and flamenco music in general. Yeah, I enjoyed the different rhythmic feels, uh, especially the instrumentation. He's always well-centered with his guitar uh, easy mm. to hear the other instruments, mainly just the supporting in the balance there. Uh, you get some more traditional sounds. And then, as I said, sort of the more modern flamenco, jazzy kind of influence with the work on the bass. And the vocals and the percussion are only supporting uh, what he's doing. But the variety of feels, rhythms are enjoyable, excellent sound quality, and very entertaining. Keeps your attention through all the whole program. So, yeah, I'm glad that he's coming out with another album so soon. Uh, He seems to have a lot of ideas, so hopefully we'll hear more in the future. Yeah, and it's really cheap, so you can pick this up. Definitely buy it. Just for the booklet, you'll get all that information. Yeah, this is an artist that we actually seek out uh, new recordings by. If he comes out with another one, we'll definitely listen to it and probably talk about it, too. Mm. Okay. All right. The last of my picks for this week is uh, by an ensemble that I like a lot they're rather unusual hmm. they are constantinople yeah a montreal quebec canada based outfit that sort of melds western classical music with uh arab and yeah Indian, uh, what different they, themes they, their releases are all over the yeah, place with really different uh, centers of music yeah you know. they like to break down barriers uh this particular album is called uh, in the footsteps of rumi and it's going to sound very Arab in this mm-hmm. case, or Persian. Now, the, the borders they're breaking down here are Arab and Persian. They're not necessarily European, although East European Turkey comes mm-hmm. into this as well. Okay, the artists are, as we say, Constantinople, and they are f- uh, directed by Kia Tabassian, who also plays uh, the setar. Not the sitar, right? Set, setar, setar, I guess I just mm. say it. Setar is setar. And he sings as well. And the main voice that we're going to hear is uh, Galia Benali. She actually gets top billing, but I wanted to make sure that- She's Tunisian, I think. She is Tunisian-Belgian. Oh, okay. So I guess she's Tunisian with a Belgian parent or so, or she grew, mm. was born in Belgium or something. I don't know. 
But anyway, she's got that Tunisian background mm-hmm. that shows up on this yes. recording. We don't hear much of the Belgian side of her no. <laughs> on this album. Okay, this is released by the Glossa label, and they're always pretty uh, interesting. Mm. They've done a lot of the um, Jordi Saval releases and things like that. So, Well, he's, he's got his own label now. I'm not really mm. sure. Anyway, Rumi is the uh, poet who's featured on this album, mostly. And uh, he lived in the 13th century, so around the same time as Dante, I think. At least in the same century. I, mean, I don't know that they were contemporaries. Tabassian writes an informative note about Rumi's life in the booklet and indicates that on this recording, and I guess whenever they play music inspired by Rumi or setting his poems, uh, that he and Galia Benali, the vocalist, have tried to find ways to reach the sublime state that is ever-present in Rumi's works. Of being drunk with love. Hmm. Okay. A state from which emerge sounds, words, and music expressing just as much passion, madness, sadness, joy, truth, and wild vitality as love. Does love express all those things? I I guess I guess this would put them with um Francesca Daremini and Canto <laughs> Five. <laughs> Dante's wow. Inferno. But no, not that kind of love. This is love of the divine mm. and love, just love in general. Okay, Rumi's poems, of course, are always about the divine. Okay. I, I couldn't help but make that joke, eh? Because <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, that's who I am. Anyway, Rumi himself said, I am neither of the East or of the West. Indeed, he traveled from his birthplace in Khorasan, which is in modern day Afghanistan, uh, to Baghdad, then to Damascus. And wound up teaching eventually in Konya, in what is now Turkey. Uh, his most famous poems are in Persian, but there are others in Arabic. And the Arabic ones are little known and almost never set to music. And here on this album, we get some set to both languages. Yeah. And you can download the texts as well if you're mm-hmm. listening on um, uh, streaming. Just uh, do a search. Yeah, you get a really big PDF of all the album notes and everything. It's really mm-hmm. nice. And you get the uh, text in uh, the original language mm-hmm. and with the original script. Right. And then there's an English translation. And that's it. So if you're French, yeah. German, you know, French, German, Italian, Spanish, you don't get any of that. Just uh, the original language and an English translation. So I just read the... I, I can't read the Arabic no. version scripts. No so I just had to read the English <laughs> translations for these to know what they were about. Anyway... Track one, let's just get into this, um, is they do this a lot. They kind of combine two different poems right, yeah. into the into one piece. And this one has uh, Awatadkuru, which means Do You Remember? And Pushidek Chonyan, invisible, which means Invisible as Soul. Okay, so if we happen to have Arabic or Persian-speaking listeners, forget about it. I don't know what these languages <laughs> sound like, really. So you just got to go by my right. terrible uh, phonetic pronunciation here. Apologies, okay? Because <laughs> I'm a big fan of language. I like to say things right, but I really don't know how to say these. And even if I looked them up, I still wouldn't get it right. I remember a, a time when um, I had this, um, I was with this uh, Swedish friend and um, she, was, she was trying to teach me Swedish. And I was trying to say the umlauted O. And she said, oh, it's pronounced something like, it's pronounced U. So I said U. And she kept saying like, not U, U. And I, it sounded the same to me, you know. Yeah, there was a, there was a joke. Uh, there was on the old uh, American TV show Get Smart, the one with um, Don Adams, Don Adams yeah. about that, where there was this um, this Chinese villain. It was a joke that we can't really make today, but I'll say it anyway. His, he was the claw, and he couldn't like because he couldn't say the L and the R. Oh, okay. So um, he kept so, so 
so Maxwell Smart kept referring her to him as like the craw. Okay. And he kept correcting him by saying, not the craw, the craw. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, times when we encounter a language we're not familiar with. Right. And we, our ears are not attuned to those sensitivities of vowels or some other things. So, I just want to yeah. say I've been on both sides of that yes. equation. So yes. both sides. Uh, I will make that joke. Yeah. Okay. And uh, <laughs> encourage you to look it up on uh, YouTube somewhere. Get right. smart. Old episodes with um, Don Adams. And Barbara Feldon. Yeah. A fun show. Anyway, back to the recording. So this is the first track, Do You Remember, Invisible and Invisible as Soul. The lyrics of Do You Remember, Awatadkuru, Awatadkuru. She actually says it. I should have remembered her, her pronunciation. You hear it a lot when um, Galia Benali sings it. These these lyrics are by uh, Salamoni Ahmed from 1979. So he's like kind of a contemporary person, I guess. This has an atmospheric opening on Middle Eastern instruments, all strings. The vocal is way up front. <laughs> it's really surprising when it comes in. It's mm-hmm. so much louder than the ensemble. Uh, every nuance of the voice is picked up as a result. Not a bad thing. Uh, the production on the album is that of a popular music album, but it works well in this context, enriching the sound of the ensemble. What I mean by popular music is that it sounds like each instrument is in a different channel and can be manipulated by the engineer rather than just having ambient mics picking up the sound. We're going to have something like this happening in jazz as well a little later. Uh, The vocals are especially this way. She really does sound like she was recorded at a different time than the rest or in a different space. Uh, The vocal line is Middle Eastern with a lot of bent notes and... uh, It's very appealing and full of a smoldering passion throughout. The first work, Awatadkuru, is a meditative work with no set rhythm. It's free-floating. A plucked string instrument comes in at about two minutes, and we get the next verse of the piece. The piece remains meditative throughout with no percussion, and we're almost being narrated to by the vocalist. At the 5 minute and 20 second mark, percussion comes in. We get, a, I guess, an Arab rhythm. Uh, there's also a male vocalist singing another melody. That's Tabassian, the director. And I'm guessing he's singing the song called Invisible as Soul. Benali's voice has been potted down in the mix for this. She's still singing, but faintly now. Uh, she sounds excellent in this type of repertoire, yeah. by the way. By the way, I should mention uh, what these instruments that we're hearing on this album are. I want to go through this. i got to find my file. We heard the setar, which is kind of like a long plucked string instrument. Yeah. It's kind of narrow looking. That's played by Kia Tabassian. We have Didem Bashar on the Kanun, which is a zither. Uh, you can see a picture of them too, by the way. And if you download the booklet, you can see pictures yeah. of all the instruments. So the zither instrument is called the Kanun. Uh, Neva Uzgen is on the Kemens, which is a bowed string instrument. It's very narrow. Yep. Nazi Borish is on the Oud. Nasa Salameh and Hamin Honari are on the percussion. And Reza Abae on the Gechak, which is a kind of bigger bowed lute mm. kind of instrument. And you can kind of make these up. It's a small out. It's a kind of small enough ensemble that you can sort of figure out uh, who's playing what on these instruments. Anyway, let's get back to the recording. Track two, Del Eman and Ya'al Afaradis, which means paradise people. This piece starts with sort of a distant march rhythm, which is it's split between two poems again. There's percussion at the beginning and Arab modes. Tabassian has the first vocal, and the song is one of those lyrics of devotion to God that can also seem a devotion to a lover. I do like the passion of Tabassian's voice at around the four... I hope that's him. 
I might have confused the two singers at this point. I think that's Benali. I like her passion in this because she comes in. Oh, maybe it is him. He starts it out, I think. Yeah. But is he? He's the only singer on some tracks. I just want to make sure. This one has male and female. Yeah, this has both. So this is her. Okay. They're kind of close to each other's range. He has they the can be, darker yeah. toned voice, but she sings in a low yeah. range. And I think she has the more passion. You can kind of hear mm. her. And you, you got to really listen closely to sometimes hear the uh, the difference because they're both... At, the man is singing more in a tenor range yeah. and the woman is singing in a low alto. The note can start in the vocal and you won't know right. for a little while whether it's a male or female voice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The timbre is close. Uh, actually, it says he's the only singer on this track. No, he's not, though. No, she's on it, too. Yeah, she comes in. Yeah, she's on it, too. Okay. Third track, Morge Bage Malakut, which means Birds of Heaven's Garden. Yamunir, which means O Luminous. This starts quietly with a late night, <laughs> late night, really chilled out, I should say, bowed string instrument called the Kemens. Kemens. It's a Turkish, it's a Turkish word. The slow trudging rhythm starts and supports an oud solo, and Galia Benali comes in for the vocal, emoting over the slow rhythm. The piece is hypnotic and goes on for 11 minutes. Uh, Tabassian comes in for a verse after an instrumental interlude, and the text is a meditation on existence. I am a bird of paradise. I am not of this earthly realm. So that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. If you know your uh, Mahler's Second Symphony, I think the the person, the, the first vocal text says something similar mm. like um, I come from God and I belong to God it's that idea at the nine minute mark Benali's voice comes back in and the tempo picks up as the instrument gives more emphatic accents to the rhythm at the end intensity is picked up with hand claps and a continuous vocal that interrupts suddenly to end the piece track four Darin Eshk Bemirid meaning in this love die and uh, the other poem La Tadi Mona or Muna don't wrong us. This is started by one of the plucked string instruments. Um, I'm guessing the setar, which is um, Tabassian's instrument, uh, because we hear the oud next at about the 40-second mark. Uh, the setar has a more twangy attack, while the oud sounds more like a less resonant guitar, kind of like a less resonant lute, mm-hmm. I guess. The opening is meditative. And again, we hear we get two poems as the text. Tabassian sings first in this love die, deals with union with God, telling the listener to die and wake up to new life. While Don't Wrong Us resembles the message in the Christian Requiem Mass's Recordare. Um, you know, remember me on that, <laughs> you know, mm. when I die. It's rather hard to tell who's singing in the end. It's either Benali and her low range of Tabassian, of course. There's a change of vocal timbre at about the ninth minute when we definitely hear Tabassian's voice. He's got a different, the timbre, the timbre mm-hmm. difference is noticeable there. Track five, Synapses. An instrumental work, highly rhythmic. It's got a brief commence solo, but it's mostly, which is the kind of like the higher mm-hmm. bowed instrument, but it's mostly an ensemble performance in the melodic material. It's like a fun jam. Yeah. <laughs> I like this one. It was kinda. cool, yeah. There are a few more instrumentals coming up too. Track six, Morlay, My Lord. Lyrics by Mohammed Zayn. So this is not a Rumi poem. This attaches to the previous track. The change comes with a sudden uptick in rhythmic presence and a strumming setar, I'd guess, or it could be a gay check. The gay check has a more, it has a bigger bowl mm. to it, so it has a more resonant sound, really. There's commence accompaniment to the voice, 
and Benali has the vocal. She's in her low end and sounds rather mannish in tone, except for some occasional whoops where she goes up into her higher end. It's sometimes hard to tell the two singers apart, as we noticed. It's a very lively piece. Track 7, Dream Behind the Dune, which features strumming instruments. It's an instrumental. Uh, there's a strumming setar, uh, Bode Commence, and Bode Gechak playing in this piece. Uh, the oud is probably in there too, but it's, if it is, it's very quiet. And the ensemble is relatively quiet and pretty subtle sounding. The instrumental piece is harmonically mostly a strum set of repeating chords as both Commence and Gechak play melodies. This one is, the yeah. harmonic changes are really interesting. Yeah. Sort of defies your expectations of where it's going to go. And also the old feels... Modal, modal harmony. Yeah, yeah. It, and it also feels like it's in a 6-4 kind of beat, uh, so a little unusual. As the previous one, I four beat, and you also have some like 5-8 kind of feels. So every tune has got some really interesting uh, new rhythmic kind of basis, and that often changes mid-tune too, so hmm. yeah, keeps you... On your toes. Okay, the next track, Fatwa for Love. Ooh. Oh, man. Which, uh, fatwa really means a verdict. verdict. Judgment, okay, yeah, yeah. Judgment. Okay, so that's what it means. Uh, verdict for Love. The lyrics for this are by Mohammed Zain. And um, yeah, just the title tells you Rumi didn't write this one. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's brief at 2 minutes and 47 seconds uh, featuring uh, Ben Ali on vocals and has a very cool, catchy rhythm with some scratchy percussion. I mm. thought this was really fun. I liked it a lot. And track nine, Rags et Sahar, Dance of the Dawn, and Talama, It Has Been a While. Lyrics are by Rumi and Rumi's master, Ibn Arabi. Benali sings the vocal on this rhythmically lively track. Uh, the ensemble quietens when she sings, then picks up the repeating rhythmic pattern between verses. The rhythm is very dancey, as the title Dance of the Dawn would suggest. And the ensemble gets an extended time in the spotlight from around uh, 3 minutes and 30 seconds until just before the very end, when Benali, to tremolo accompaniment, narrates the last part of the poem Talama. So this is an extremely well-produced atmospheric album. By the way, I want to just recommend this ensemble, Constantinople, just in general, if you, especially if you like this album. They're very interesting. Yeah. And they're never the same twice. No. Um, they, they really have some pretty interesting... Uh, programming ideas mm -hmm. so check them out this particular album is atmospheric and it brings one of the sounds the sounds of the desert it brings out the sounds of the desert under Rumi's devotional poetry the vocals are way up front the sound is clear and crisp 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 that's like the old <laughs> breakfast cereal crisp okay crisp and quake yeah <laughs> uh, we were just talking about that the other night that's probably why that right. happened okay very upholstered sound which works well for this type of music in this album, it's atmospheric all the way through and highly recommended, as are all of Constantinople's recordings for those interested in the repertoire. You really can't go wrong with this ensemble. They play mostly in a Middle Eastern, East European style, but are always keen to blur and even erase boundaries. Yeah, this one's a, another good release in their catalog. As you said, they're all different. And within this recording, there's a lot of variety. Uh, all the pieces are quite different in the rhythmic feels. The meter's constantly changing. The modal harmonies are surprising. Uh, each piece is unique. And then you've got Benali's really interesting voice, mm. uh, very powerful. But it's balanced out with you know good vocal work from Tabassi in here, too. 
just very interesting, uh, something completely different, and I enjoyed it a lot. I never listened to the, I, I'm never counting the rhythms in Arab music because I just figure, oh, it's going to be an odd rhythm, but I should start doing that. I was because I'm always listening to the modes mostly. Right. I want to hear like what's you know what's going on. Anyway, yeah, there you go. So a uh, right. little uh, trip to across the uh, Mediterranean there, as it yeah. were. Well, keep your passport handy because yeah. we're going to keep traveling for jazz. And well, you know, Latin jazz is a whole kind of, you know, style of jazz that stands on its own. And right. regular jazz has, of course, absorbed Latin music. And, you know, in any kind of jazz recording, you're going to often hear a bossa nova mm-hmm. with that straight beat as opposed to the swing. And of course, Cuban rhythms came in during bebop too. You'll hear in Dizzy Gillespie's music and on. So in a certain way, you know, we're always hearing Latin influence in jazz. So the the first recording I have here, and all of these recordings have some other ethnic influences. I kind of saved it because it's more of the traditional Latin American element than it is jazz, but jazz is mixed into it as well. And this one is uh, Colombian. And the Colombian flute player, Pachito Munoz, with his release that's called Paisajes. Hmm. And this is uh, on his own uh, label. And this uh, Paisajes means uh, landscapes. Hmm. And that's a kind of essential inspiration for this recording. Now, Munoz is a flutist composer. Uh, his first recording came out in 2017, and that was called pigmentation tribute to the ancestors. Hmm. Uh, so he's into exploring the native music of Colombia, and it has a big influence on these sounds. Uh, that had a, a fusion and diversity of folklore, also that's kind of matched with uh, improvisation from jazz. And that's also in here. He's a uh, teacher of flute and improvisation at the University of Antioquia. Hmm. So he's academic as well. So this recording was made in 2019. It's just released in June here. And this one sort of uh, is inspired by elements of Colombia's natural landscapes. And so we get some traditional music and inspiration from natural themes. Yeah, one thing I like about this album too is that all the tracks have a one-word title. I've always found that really evocative somehow. We just have to give it a one-word title. This song is called... (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so it's got these natural natural sounds and also ancestral instruments, which <laughs> not being able to find the album notes or get the CD, I'm going to leave that are. up to uh, <laughs> you to figure out, listeners. So uh, on this recording, Munoz is on flute, uh, gota, bagpipes, ocarinas, ethnic flutes, and also wrote all the compositions. Now, how did you find that out? That's... I can find on his uh, okay. Facebook page and ah. the uh, recording listing. That's about it. Maybe he'll write to us. Could be. <laughs> uh, and we've got uh, Samuel Brian Farley on piano, Marcos Cañola on bass, Sebastian Forero on drums, and uh, John Rojas, who is referred to on his Facebook uh, note uh, by Munoz as Chiki Percussion. Chiki Percussion. <laughs> percussion. Uh, he's on... Uh, all the percussion you hear on here, conga, some kind of uh, seed uh, mm. shakers and uh, all kinds of other things here. So we're going to start out with uh, track one, Yuma, which I guess is a region of Colombia. It begins with a minor melody riff on breathy flute instruments, uh, makes an eight bar intro to this. Sounds very woody. I'm not sure what kind of 
fluted is, as I said, with the instrumentation. Uh, there are more parts that be, seem to be overdubbed uh, yeah. onto that. So we get a sort of layer of uh, wind sound here. Goes around again when a heavy conga beat shaker and bass and piano join in. There's more variations on the melody that get added as they go. And it goes through a more uh, rhythmic phased or phrased repeating section where the flute phrases, interestingly, uh, cut across the four-beat meter. So we've got this kind of driving beat, but the flute is sort of, uh, you know, not following the phrasings of the percussion, which is kind of interesting. Uh, there's a solo section for conga and percussion. And then Munoz comes back in over the percussion with two parts working together uh, and improvisations around the melody. Bass and piano come back in for a repeat of the melody sections uh, with some variations to the end. I'd say this one is m more influenced by traditional Colombian rhythms and the melody than jazz here. But the bass that drives the tune has kind of unique rhythms in it. Track two is called Brisa, uh, Breeze. Got a guest here, Eduard Ramirez on guitar. This one's got a really uplifting tune, kind of rich major chords to it. The flute has a melody of short kind of dancing phrases. It's interestingly in a 5-4 meter uh, with a couple of different kind of measures of different meters thrown in at the end of phrases. This sort of mm -hmm. gives you a little different feel before you move on. The tune has a unique syncopated staccato bass part that I found interesting. Ramirez adds textured strums on guitar for backing. Uh, the flute drops out for the next section, which features a fretless bass line. Mm. Uh, that always, you know, in Latin music, the kind of uh, fluidity of the fretless bass sound is cool. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. There's some piano sprinkles in there too. The Munoz returns with another more soaring theme and a fluttery solo. Uh, the next section has a really rapid strumming guitar solo uh, by Ramirez. It's not a, you know, lead line. It's all strumming. Uh, or the flute returns uh, with another theme. And there's a delicate little uh, piano and guitar section before the final melody. Track three is uh, Merengosa. I don't know what that means. Conga and percussion get it started. It's joined by a bluesy bass line and a piano chord riff. Munoz comes in with short blazing rhythmic flute line that's doubled in the bass. That's cool. Uh, then it's back to the percussion and earlier riff until a new rhythmic flute line starts going over on top, uh, ending in the cool blazing line that you heard at the beginning. It's really ear-catching. Then Munoz gets some solo time. He gets into interesting modal and harmonic ideas over percussive dissonant chords from Farley. It's very jamming and jazzy on this track here, and the bass and Congo groove sticks. Uh, Farley gets a piano solo next, which is rhythmic and has clear articulation. Once more, that blazing line comes in to set up a fretless bass solo from Cagnola. Uh, he has fast fingers that run all over the fret plurred, uh, smooth as butter, uh, taking it down low for a bit before getting back to the groove. A percussion section follows, and piano and bass join back in for vamping out on this groove. And finally, they take that blazing line back into a last flute section. So this one's very jazzy, but it has a cool kind of primal nature sound uh, in the solo section from uh, those ethnic elements. Track four, Viento, the wind, and it starts with <laughs> airy flute breaths and kind of shaker sounds you get evoking uh, nature. Over a sparse bass and piano intro, Munoz plays a low, intriguing, free-flowing melody with interesting pitch drops and ornaments. What is this? Is this a big ocarina? I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> sound like a regular flute. Again, great buttery fretless bass lines and ringing piano under that. 
Uh, Farley gets a piano solo after that. It starts delicate, but becomes more insistent, building the tension into crashing chords and then subsiding with more soft figures. Munoz returns on a flute for a more placid melody. Uh, his tone is rich, but with a warmth of breath rather than a shimmer. I like the he has really rich tonal kind of uh, palette that he can draw from. That section comes to a close before seven minutes, but the tune continues on with some flute breaths, uh, vocalizations, and rhythmic chants uh, over the rising piano figures. Then Munoz comes back on the earlier instrument, and he's got flute in the middle, and returns for a final mystical theme. Hmm. Track five is the title track, Pisias, The Landscapes. It's a happy syncopated piano and bass line over percussion that started out into a waltzing and uplifting flute line. There's a change to a slower and more flowing waltz melody, but that speeds back up at the end of the line into the original tempo and groove. Farley gets an extended piano solo here, trying out a lot of different rhythmic ideas and jazzy runs. And Munjo's is up next for a very agile and fluttery solo with pretty melodies. Goes back to the opening groove, for some percussion jamming, and they make another run through the initial fast and then slower melody sequences again. Yeah, nice composition. Track six, Nubes, The Clouds. It's an alternating chord ostinato bass line in 6-8, but it has an interesting skip <laughs> in that mm-hmm. meter uh, that keeps it interesting. Uh, Farley has some delicate piano figures to make a nice atmosphere. Munoz comes in with a pretty floating flute line. Cagnola drives the movement with varied inventive bass lines underneath, there's light and tasteful cymbals and click work on the drums from Forero. And Munoz has an improvised flute solo. Next is Farley on piano, who impresses with rapid lines and percussive chords. I like how the feel and groove flows from light to more intense behind the solos and mixes up. Uh, Munoz returns with the melody once more. Then Cagnola has a bass solo, working into some rhythmic synchronizing with Farley. Then more vigorous flute soloing from Munoz. And a final kind of gentle ending. Yeah. I just want to mention about the bass solo. It sounds like he's way back in the mix. He's kind of hard yeah. to pull out. It sounds like what he's doing is interesting too. I, yeah. mean, I would have liked to have heard a little more presence from him. And that fretless attack is so soft yeah. that it, it doesn't, you know, the attack like, doesn't. It's, it's got that melted chocolate yeah. kind of. Yeah, that's why I called it, it buttery. It, yeah. It's in back in the mix. It's really quite low. Right. And the attack is not sort of equalized. There's not a lot of, you know, high on it. So as you say, it's yeah. kind of. A little I bit wish amorphous. They had lifted that Bring a little bit in the mix, though. Anyway, yeah. that's just my. Thing. Yeah, a nice bass playing though. Yeah, it was good bass playing, absolutely. And the final track, Gaitando, which I think means touring, maybe traveling the countryside. Could mm-hmm. be wrong. Uh, this one opens with a killer syncopated drum and bass pickup into a funky groove. Munoz starts out over that with some fiery flute figures, pulls it back into more restrained melody. Uh, his vibrato here gives a real sense of intensity even when he's playing like a you know a rather longer pitch the that wavering makes you expect something uh, it sounds i don't know like a wood flute to me here farley has a piano solo that gets kind of bluesy and also out there with some jazz harmonies Cagnolo is bluesy uh, and speedy up high on the fretless bass again in his solo then munoz gets a solo next and he f- the kind of groove breaks down into a free form before it restarts with some rhythmic chords from Farley. Then Munoz brings back the melody with some added intense ornaments into a percussion solo section and a final synchronized rhythmic riff to end it. Mm. So it's an energetic recording with a balance of ethnic Colombian sounds and rhythms, melodies, uh, 
that are original, but inspired by traditional music and the natural environment. Uh, the rhythms are Latin American and unique, but there are also a lot of jazzy solos uh, along the way in the bass and flute, piano as well. The songs have catchy melodies, a variety of styles and meters, but the real treat here is Munoz's variety of instruments and tones yeah, on I the flutes, so. a great technique and a intensity in his playing, uh, both in the timbre and phrasing. Yeah, I thought this album was mostly about its sound. I have like I like that, that's really what I liked about most about the album. It's beautifully recorded, and I liked the the breathy flute sounds. I just like that. The sound. Yeah. we hear a lot of um, Peruvians here playing like their yeah. Peruvian folk music. And they use a lot of it's an earthy the, tone the same to or it. similar yeah. instruments. Yeah. yeah. I thought the bass needed to be more forward for the solos, but that's about it. This album is more of a it. It didn't come across to me as a jazz album. It's more of like a sort of popular music instrumental album because the the harmony didn't really expand like it does mm-hmm. in a lot of jazz. It kind of stayed in a more popular music kind of right. more limited um, tonal range. So it was pretty, and there was some good soloing. Um, I just I just would have liked to have heard it, I think, expand out, but maybe that's unfair because it's not really a, a straight jazz yeah, album. Yeah. Um, it was enjoyable, though, um, and really atmospheric, I thought. I liked yeah. the uh, – I always like that breathy flute sound. That yeah, always I, gets I like me. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's why I held it for this episode because mm-hmm. I thought it's it's more – World, you know, I, I world music is such a generic term, but it's more yeah. influenced from Colombian music than to call it, you know, a pure jazz recording. Uh, but yeah. interesting nonetheless. All right. All right. Keep your passport handy. We're going to go to the sounds of South Africa next with the recording of Narratives and Nocturnes. This is on the Outside in Music label, the Simeon Davis Group. And hold on. I need to pour a uh, a bourbon for this because this was really <laughs> a lot to think about on this album. Oh, yeah. All right. Here we go. I'm all ready. <laughs> here we go. All right. So this album came back uh, out back in June, and I had just sort of spot-checked it and put it on my list as something. I said, this will be interesting to listen to. And I got a, we, we got a message from uh, Simeon Davis, right. you know, kind of saying, would you be interested in talking about my album? And I said, well, it's on the list. Then when I heard it, I said, okay, where are we going to fit this one in? Because it's a little bit uh Not different. only that, how are we going to talk about it? Because yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty complicated, yeah. you know? So uh, thanks, Simeon, for giving me the, that recording that took the most notes of all time, I think, to get through here. <laughs> anyway, um, Davis has got a kind of talent and a notoriety for arranging. Even at a young age, he's got awards from Downbeat Magazine in 2021 and the American Society of Music Arrangers and Composers same year. He composes, leads a band, plays saxophone, and says he also plays violin, too. And he's got... Uh, influences blending jazz, folk, classical, uh, neo-soul music with his roots in uh, South African music, which is where he was raised and lived in Cape Town for 17 years. And so this recording of Narratives and Nocturnes has eight original composed works uh, written programmatically to elements of mythology, religion, and visual art, accompanied with original poetic prose and illustrations by Vancouver-based designer studio Celeste. And it sounds like it's all in there. Um, <laughs> now, now, I'm making these jokes. I don't want to put people off. It's not that it's it's not difficult to listen to music, and it's not complicated. There's just a lot in it. You know, it right. just keeps going from new idea to new idea. There's extensive notes about all of this online. You can get to it. This music has a lot of changes and a lot of interesting things going on in it. And we'll try to get that experience uh, 
explained here. On the recording, we've got some vocals. Tyler Thomas, the male voice. Rachel Asbel, female voice. Trumpet and flugelhorn. Jonathan Shire, guitar. Two players. Uh, Maria Wellman, Alex Hand. Piano and keyboards. Holly Holt, electric bass. Jake Shafi. Drums, Josh Parker. Trombone, Maxima Santana. Violin, Jess Meador. Congas, Aramis Fernandez, and saxophone flute and the composer of all the works, Mr. Simeon Davis. All right, we're going to start out with The Diver. Hmm. And this piece was inspired by the journal entries of Davis's friend, a marine archaeologist. <laughs> and so it utilizes, these are the album notes, uh, mixed meters to evoke the ebb and flow of the ocean. Taking a listen here, these are my impressions uh starts with a panning phasey keyboard i guess it's a wurlitzer piano yeah it'll swirl between your left and right speakers or yeah. headphones no i was listening to all this in headphones of yeah. course because yeah. i don't have the uh the the cd for this and it was like it was like listening to an old pink floyd album it just, <laughs> it just going back kept and forth, going back yeah. the, the the sound just kept going back and forth between ear to ear and i was just really glad i wasn't stoned or anything. <laughs> although maybe that would help Could i help. don't know yeah Anyway, that's joined by guitar and cymbals, then bass. It seems to be in a 7-8 meter. Uh, after a short break with bass, Shire comes in on a flugelhorn melody, soon doubled in unison by a male voice, Tyler Thomas. It changes up quickly with a funky piano and bass groove. Now it's in 8 beats, or maybe they feel it in 4-4, four, four, but the meters change. The drums kick it up, and a bluesy sax and trumpet join with the voice for a new line that smooths out. It goes back and forth between the seven and eight beat feels. The vocal and horn line gets big, bluesy, and broken up with electric piano from Holly Holt, who gets a solo next. She mixes it up nicely between light and rhythmic figures, washes of harmonic runs creating tension when the groove kind of melts away. Then the beat kicks up again. She gets more percussive chord ideas and runs. The horns return for backing cries, ending in some faint alternations that groove changes up again <laughs> over a new drum beat and the addition of a synthy bass line then some huge high even piano chord chimes come in a forceful horn and vocal line too the bass solos over the groove after the horns pull out fat and distorted the bass that is uh, pushing outside the chords with some tension building notes the horns and voice return for some backing hits and licks and take over after a quick pause at about Seven minutes, 15 seconds, the horns are snuffed out for a new section introduced by the electric piano in the lower register with some final softer horns and voice lines on top. The eight beat feel slows down slightly. The piano drops out for the horns and voice to finish it on their own. Lots of changes going on. Yeah. And this is just the first tune. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the things I, I picked up about this album. So I was kind of writing my impressions. Like, oh, none, of these, none of these sections are repeating. They actually do repeat at yeah. times, but... It's hard to remember where you first heard them. Often it'll mm -hmm. be like the first bit, and it's 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 sort of hard to follow that way. But it's pretty interesting. You're always yeah. you always feel like you're going yeah. into some new sort of um, you know musical oh landscape or something. The scores you must need two music stands for the scores <laughs> of these tunes to play these parts. You should, actually, you should ask him that. Yeah, yeah. Track two, seven come Wednesday. Uh, this one utilizes uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Gohema groove. Mm. An instrumentation typical of Cape jazz, a localized subgenre of South African jazz. It kind of sounded sort of rock and rolly. A bit, to me. Yeah. yeah. It's a very slow drum beat at the beginning with claps on two and four, some gospel y piano chords to begin. Uh, Tyler Thomas adds a soulful 
wordless vocal line on top that gets joined by the horns. From here, a new groove emerges underneath with a rhythmic subdivided bass line, tight brush drumming. Now the voice and horn lines continue and has cool jazzy phrases over stop time by the rhythm section. It's fun and floating with engaging phrases and the harmonies twist as it snakes along. A new sparse fast light and syncopated groove in the piano, drums, and bass set the scene for a vocalization solo from Thomas, exploring some interesting pitches and microtones. He gets more scatty jazz enunciation as he builds it up, uh, going up high with some trombone-like sliding figures in his voice. The drums have kicked it up underneath and clapping joins in the fun. Uh, he really goes on and on in this uh, vocalization solo. Holt is up next with an acoustic piano solo. She plays it sparse and rhythmic to start, focusing on harmonic tensions and releases, then getting into some more runs and rapid figures. There's some nice rhythm gu guitar going on behind her, creating more rhythmic tensions. The guitar emerges for a solo next, pushing with some harmonic tensions in the lines, getting a more edgy tone, and then faster and fluid figures. Claps, horns, vocal backings push the guitar along with backing lines. It goes back into the stop time for a horn and vocal line for a bit into a drum solo punctuated by bass beats. Finally, back to the happy vocal and horn melody over the stop time rhythm. They continue to the end with some repeats of the final phrases with cool chromatic ascensions. I like the jazzy phrasing mixed with the African grooves and the voice inflections. Uh, kind of a unique kind of composition. Yeah, nice emphatic ending chord at the end. Yeah. Track three, Requiem for Charles. It's a slow and bluesy start with just bass and Simeon's alto sax. Drums and electric piano join in next time around. Trumpet and vocal join in for some backing counter lines and spots. Wellman gets a guitar solo with a nice dark tone and fluid jazzy lines over the free-flowing tempo. Simeon is up next for a, guitar, uh, a sax solo. rather. He builds short rising notes into some high cries and swooping phrases with an angsty tone, digging down on a low riff and into some high cries, almost into strangulation of the sax. Mm. Uh, he gets more bluesy, then wailing until you think he might pop a blood vessel. But <laughs> then he gets quiet as a kitten at the end to tie it back into the melody. Trumpet and voice join in again till they all drop out for Simeon to take a sax cadenza. Uh, he mixes some squawky sounds with melodic phrases that outline the harmonies, uh, bringing it to a tense high final notes uh, for the rhythm section to add some final punctuation to. I, I like the kind of precarious atmosphere. After the long solo, I didn't think there would be much left you know, in him for a cadenza. And you share the feeling of not knowing how it's going to turn out. He sort of goes out on a, a limb artistically there, but yeah. uh, to good effect. Yeah, I got to say... Um if, if you lived in my neighborhood, I don't think you'd be using that uh, quiet as a kitten metaphor <laughs> much, much more. Noisy as a kitten, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh. They, uh, they, get to, they get to caterwauling sounds caterwauling. in the spring. Oof. All right. Track four, Eden. The explanation found for this one says, drawing on Judeo-Christian creation narrative, Eden utilizes four main themes to represent the four main players. The voice of God in the Wurlitzer chords... Adam, the male vocal melody, Eve, the earthy, funky groove, and the serpent is the electric guitar. I wish I had known this before I heard it. <laughs> I have to listen again. I will go back. The themes not only interact, but transform each other through counterpoint harmony solos and backgrounds. All right, start to listen. The funky and phasey Wurlitzer piano chords started out. Tyler Thomas adds a wordless vocal melody on top. Nice uplifting phrases. Bass and trumpet join in, and then Simeon, too. It sounds like on soprano sax here. 
There's a break with some funky bass into a new groove. A greasy trumpet and sax melody line comes in. A voice joins in with another line. There's a change to a light seven-beat groove with a tight snare drum under undulating piano. A legato vocalized and sax line is added. Trumpet comes on top as it works back to a heavier groove, still in seven, but there's a quick change back to the original eight-beat feel. Trumpet and vocal work together, and sax has a counterline uh, for a bit, too. Bass and drums take it until Wellman has a dark-sounding solo line. Horns and voice add interesting swooping lines in the back uh, for a while, but drop out for some outside harmony, intense guitar soloing over the groove. The backing lines return, but then things quiet down over rhythmic Wurlitzer and a bass with light cymbals. Cher has his uh, time for a trumpet solo. He builds it up slowly from softer, longer lines into higher rhythmic figures, keeping a relaxed feel all the while. He gets up to some shaky high notes uh, that he likes to rip into. He keeps going on into some intense trills and falls as Saxon voice back him up and they join into a melody line. It gets quiet with only the voice remaining over the Wurlitzer chords, and then the voice disappears too, and there's only bass and light drums for a minute until the voice and horns return for final whispered phrases over the bass heart. Nice nice description. I gotta say, you're getting a... You're doing a good summary of these very <laughs> complicated pieces. Yeah, these... Uh, these were tiring to uh, put they, into words. They, they were hard um, to Interesting describe, to listen yeah. to. They were interesting to listen to, yeah. certainly, yeah. yeah. Uh, five. Mm. Qu- you, know, it's, you can't just say this tune. You know, you normally say a jazz tune. This is an AABA4 <laughs> and, uh, you know, this. No, not yet. Well, well, that's the thing. Often when I sit down to listen to jazz, I'm like, okay, this is going to be like a, a chord pattern. Yeah. And it's going to just keep repeating and there'll be people soloing. Yeah. That, that's not what happens here. No, no, this no. kind of has a, like, a, it, it kind of draws a lot from, like, I feel progressive rock as well. At least the, the albums I heard were mm-hmm. in the 70s when I was younger. Yeah. So you never knew what was going to come next. And that's it's for all, sure. And it's also a very highly produced album, which actually I think helps in this case. I don't think yeah. this could just be an acoustic, no, like live recording, you know. Because it, to get the most out of Davis's arrangements, you need to hear each part right. clearly. Yeah. Uh, and you can do that on the recording. So, yeah. All right, track five. We go from Eden to A Quiet Night in Pandemonium. It's <laughs> a good title. Yeah. Yeah. A repeated syncopated 6 8 acoustic guitar and piano arpeggio figure. With a downward chordal motion, get things started. On top of that, a sparse electric guitar and piano theme start, and then falling and rising sheets of legato horn lines and voice come in, this time with female voice. Some interesting harmonies result. The drums kick it up underneath, and there are a few percussion and bass breaks, leaving the horns and voice floating over guitar and then falling and rising piano runs. The bass gets a funky groove going under the continuing horn and voice lines, until things break up with some ominous bass and piano rhythmic figures coming in and out over heavy drumming. The horns and voice continue backing over some guitar lines uh, from Wellman. The figures all get thickly layered until Shire emerges with a reverby trumpet solo. The layers come back until it transitions into a new section right about midway through with repeated guitar overtone picks and sparse piano figures and a descending bass line. A flute, and I think flugelhorn, come in on a line and another counterpoint female vocal line as well. The bass is bouncing away as the horn and voice give way to more guitar from Wellman for some extra strains. Uh, Wellman has a 
reverby thick tone really swelling here. The horns and voice lines weave in and out and then continue more softly after the guitar solo finishes. It returns to the original theme with busier horn and vocal lines and some ad-lib electric guitar and trumpet. The light drum groove transforms into a heavy five-beat pattern from the previous six beats and then back to six for the final trading of lines between the horns, voice, and bass. Track six, Pleiades. It starts with repeated piano notes, making a kind of clave rhythm. A violin enters on this tune, a new sound in the lower register, with hand claps emphasizing the rhythm. Electric guitar joins the Spanish-sounding modal line of the violin. Bass and drums come in, and layers of lines are added with flute, trombone, and female voice. It breaks into a four-bar repeating bass and piano line that the violin solos over. Voice and winds enter again with counter lines, some breakups of the rhythmic patterns. There's a new staccato, syncopated groove in the bass that gets things moving, and the violin launches on a pretty wild solo ride with horn and vocal backings. The next section has a more relaxed bass and piano lower line with a more legato and floating vocal and horn line. Then it's back to the clave rhythm piano under a soprano sax solo from Davis. The horns and vocals swirl behind him. After the sax solo, the horn and vocal line trade with some unison bass and guitar riffs. Then the violin and guitar are together over the piano clave. Bass and trombone have a heavy line together, and voice joins the violin and guitar. The rhythm section carries on for a bit with some drum jamming before the layers of wind's voice and piano or violin line come back, pushing to the end uh, with a unique final line. Hmm. Lots of layers in these arrangements, especially yeah. in this tune. Yeah. Track seven, The Panther. And this starts out with piano. It's a fast six-note left-hand figure and a sparse and jumpy right-hand notes. Bass and guitar enter with guitar taking over the piano left-hand figure, uh, the rhythm from that. Uh, drums join lightly on cymbals. The minor theme ends on a major chord, surprisingly, and the bass takes it into a new funkier groove with trumpet and sax, getting a rhythmic figure line and a contrasting strain of voice and piano before they all join in together. There's a break with solo piano uh, before they join in again, more floating, until the pulsing bass leads back to a new groove and more changes to the lines and rhythms. Next, a quieter section of rhythmic piano and bass notes make a bass for an electric guitar line of interval jumps. Trumpet and male voice join that line. They fade away, and Davis comes in on soprano sax, building it up over the swelling groove underneath. Hmm. A reverby electric guitar solo is next. Assume it's Wellman again. He plays some cool tension-building fast triplet figures, makes a climax with licks up high. Continuing on a bit with little licks over the new groove in bass and drums, the horns add some pumping while the drums hammer away. Next bass and a guitar in the lower register work a tricky syncopated line over the beating drums. Maybe that's the stalking panther coming after you. Hmm. Uh, horns join in and withdraw again. Piano takes it back into the full ensemble ideas with the voice from earlier. The rhythms get choppier and trickier as it pushes along. It ends with a drum beat with some sparse piano and distant crying tones, I think, from the guitar. And it fades at the end. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's that, not that, like a fade out. It's a, yeah, yeah. just kind that, of. That doesn't bother me here, though. Because yeah. This is basically a. It's done. Yeah. So. Yeah, but it's also like a, a produced, like yeah. almost. Atmospheric you know, ending. Yeah. Yeah. Album, too. So it just kind of. Yeah. It's acceptable here. This in live performances. When you hear in a live performance recorded, I don't like when there's a fade out. Yeah. That's basically my thing. I think if I ever hear a classical uh, track that fades out, I will end my life. <laughs> <laughs> Because there will be no I'm gonna inno- find one and there, there will be no innocence left in the <laughs> on the earth if that happens. All right, and the last tune on here is uh, Ingoma 
Yohol, Pisa. This translates from the Hosa, if I'm saying it right, language. Yoholo, uh, I guess. I don't know. Yoholo. Yoholo. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's a Hosa language. Uh, uh, this one, a piano intro with some ringing open chords and a, to me, a pentatonic sounding theme with a few interesting harmonic passing tensions. It's a happier sounding melody that emerges with uplifting phrases and a rhythmic left-hand note comes in underneath as drums and percussion join in. Trumpet takes the happy high melody and is joined by sax. Bass and male voices come in with a side-swiping line, creating harmonic and rhythm, rhythmic clashes of tension. Uh, a new groove emerges, helped by rhythmic guitar figures. Davis brings in a choppy sax line and then gets joined by a counterline of trumpet and voice. Conga beats up a storm underneath that. Sax and guitar together play a riff that transitions into a completely new 6-8 groove with rhythm guitar and bouncy bass. Voice and sax float lines over, rhythmic breaks along the way. Trumpet joins in too. It works up to a percussion and bass jam. Piano, guitar, and the horns come in to cheer it on. Davis is up next for a tart and ripping sax solo full of angsty tone and growls. This is his most intense playing on the recording. The congas and bass groove intensely below his blowing. Uh, the rhythm guitar is hammering, and trumpet adds some encouragement along the way, too. It simmers down over the percussion and bass for a rhythmic and spacey piano solo. Horn lines cheer on the piano, then come back more fluidly as it settles to just quiet piano for a slow restart like the intro. Bass and cymbals come in, and then the trumpet is back with a melody line joined by male voice. It swells to a forte, but then comes back down for a peaceful ending, fading with sparse piano chords and light drum toms. Hmm. So uh, Davis has put a lot of work into these compositions and arrangements, which continue to surprise with quick changes at every turn. Uh, they keep you on your toes, and overall the impression of all the layers of things that are going on uh, is very interesting. I like the use of male and female voice as another instrument. It's another kind of timbre matched into the arrangement. Uh, the solos have good intensity and creative ideas, especially uh, from Holt on piano, Wellman on guitar, and Davis himself on the saxes. And the incorporation of the South African musical elements and storylines makes a unique mixture with the jazzy ideas. These are very young musicians could be we're just getting to be old guys, but you can yeah. see the video uh, studio recording of this. Uh, it's inspiring, interesting, creative mix of elements and uh, very good arranging. Uh, makes yeah. for an interesting listen. You'll probably have to listen quite a few times to get all of the things yeah, that are going there's on. There's a here. lot here. I just want to ask: did, did we actually hear all five pages of your notes? Just That's now? all five pages. That's really right. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's you really got through them pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now this is this is a highly produced jazz album, and I'm usually not a fan of them, but I thought this one was pretty good, and because it just kept my interest all the way through. It just kept changing, and I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's music for the. Although it is challenging because it keeps kind of it, it sort of keeps you on your toes so mm -hmm. you can figure out what's happening section uh after section or just a a new surprise mm -hmm. you know i thought this came across as more of a like a progressive rock album from the 70s with jazz stylings mm -hmm. uh as opposed to like say a straight jazz album well it's not a straight jazz album really uh, the compositions always took surprising twists and turns and it kept me interested throughout I thought the electric piano's tone wavering between left and right channels, nice effect, brought us back to the 1970s again. Again, that put me in a progressive um, uh, rock mode. I thought it was 
that went on for the whole track. I really <laughs> thought that was hard, but uh, it was cool. I guess some heads would like that a lot. You know, the the more head music people would enjoy mm. that effect. Uh, the comp- compositions reminded me of. Um, yeah, I I kind of thought. Of, do you remember Pink Floyd's sidelong track Echoes from mm, the album Metal? Vaguely, yeah. It kind of the way that it has like it's kind of like a done as like a four movement thing, but it's one continuous thing, and one would fade into the other. And I kind of felt like this was kind of some of these pieces were kind of built on that sort of idea that there would be like a new section, new section, and they would just kind of right. so. Okay, all the tracks are very long. There are only eight tracks on this album, but it's an 80-minute yeah. album. They got it all out there. Congratulations for that. It's it's kind of wearying to listen to. There's a lot of a lot to pay attention to on this album. Maybe a few tracks at a time. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's hard to yeah. sit through this uh at once. It is demanding on the brain to try to follow all this, but it is enjoyable. Yeah, it's a good direction. I mean, especially for young musicians. I was referring to that, mm. uh, you know, some of Rick Beato's right. recent videos were talking about how, you know, songs are are shorter and shorter. They're, after we had all this great album rock that young people listened to, you know, with nine minute, seven minute right. uh, tunes. Now we're back to that three minute right. in this uh, TikTok generation of even shorter attention spans. You know what's funny about that is like the attention span thing. Like if people were complaining about us when we were kids, they were saying, oh, people's attention span is only 10 minutes because yeah. the TV is like before the commercial comes, you get like a 10 minute thing. Yeah. But now they're, now they're down to like <laughs> less than a minute. Yeah. But it's nice to see longer form compositions yeah, uh, being always, inspired. Yeah. And, uh, although although they're broken up into like smaller sections, parts. So yeah. maybe it's kind of like uh, this sort of a surfing the internet kind of I feel there. Could you be. Know? You're yeah. Just kinda... You're certainly not going to get 10 minutes of uh, the same uh, things repeating. Uh, all these tunes are really unique and go in different places. So. I also rather like the, uh, the, the jazz solo freak out, you know, where you reach the climax and it's just this total freak out. And they do that quite yeah. a lot on this album. Yeah, a good. lot of these guys build to a freak out yeah. for it, for their climax. Yeah. Yeah. That's so really like that sax too. strangulation and sax way out there guitar. Yeah. It's good. Saxes were made to be yeah. strangled. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed this. The playing is good and I'd be interested to see what uh, Simeon Davis comes up with next in the, uh, output of his arranging and composing skills. Yeah. So, Keep us posted. Yeah, keep us on. I was interested in this. All right, and our final stop on the world tour. And, and my favorite uh, album of the favorite week, actually. One. This is um, more in the standard jazz uh, realm, but with a very interesting influence. And this is Mr. Todd Marcus with his latest recording, In the Valley. It's on Stricker Street Records. And notably because we've got an Egyptian influence. Hmm. And I want to read... Uh, his uh, notes. I got these from Bandcamp. I want to get the okay. CD. Actually, I actually have it on order already. <laughs> I, yeah, I wish I had it because there's a, a number of saxophone players on here. I wanted to give absolute yeah. credit, but I won't be able to do that right. uh, until I get the CD. Because well, I haven't received the CD. Apparently, it's got waiting. a 12 page booklet. Oh, cool. So, but it was worth that, the money. Anyway, it would have been anyway. Actually, I'd like to read these two paragraphs because that will give you a little bit of setting uh, mm. for 
why this has this influence. So, uh, quote, recent years have been important for me musically and socially as I've explored the incorporation of Middle Eastern music into jazz. This has stemmed from my own journey to dig deeper into my Egyptian ethnicity. My father was Egyptian, and I think it is an insightful reflection of both my American culture through jazz and Egyptian culture through Middle Eastern music. This effort has been a challenging one, though as jazz and Middle Eastern music are constructed very differently. While the harmonies in jazz are a crucial element that define its sound, traditional Middle Eastern melodies typically do not use harmony and focus more on unison themes. So, in many ways, my efforts to merge these two musics is a good metaphor for me as an individual who continues to explore and integrate his American and Egyptian cultures. Continuing, my early efforts to incorporate Middle Eastern music came years ago after I asked my father for samples and he gave me an album by one of the great Egyptian vocalists, Abdel Halim Hafez. Uh, this had a major impact on me and led to initial compositions merging Middle Eastern music and jazz. A couple years later, the Arab Spring movement took place in Egypt starting in 2011 and was largely focused in Tahrir Square in Cairo. I closely followed these events as they unfolded, both with interest in Egypt's future as a country and out of concern for my family members that still reside in Egypt in the cities of Cairo and Alexandria. Yeah. So, He's uh, you know, exploring his roots, mixing. This is a really interesting mix of sounds. And uh, I think it really inspires the soloists here with some different kind of harmonic tools they have to work with. Yeah, these the, the playing, it just all gels really well with the composition. Yeah. The whole thing just sounded great. It was a very exciting record, I thought. I liked it a lot. Other than mm. the, these cool Egyptian influences, I found the arrangements are just top-notch of the horns here. Mm. So it's... a. Uh, uh, you know, an ensemble here. We've got Todd Marcus on bass clarinet, Greg Tardy on tenor sax, Brent Briquette on flute and alto sax, Russell Kirk, also alto sax, Alex Norris on trumpet, who we heard before uh, a couple times, uh, episode 36, his solo release, Fleet from the Heart, also episode 56 with uh, Manuel Valera's uh, new Cuban Express Big Bam. Uh, we've got Alan Ferber on trombone, uh, Xavier Davis on piano, who I had the pleasure of meeting one time in Osaka. Got Very cool. to uh, meet him between sets with Freddie Hubbard. It was a nice conversation. Jeff Reed on bass and Eric Kennedy, who really stands out on drums to me on this recording. So let's get into it. Uh, one is Horace Intro. And this is just a short little intro by Xavier Davis, warming up your ear hmm. for the harmonic modes you're going to hear. So it's kind of rising rubato piano lines uh, that give you a hint that you're in for something different harmonically, especially the final scale going up. Keep that sound in your ear because you're going to need it in the next track, the full <laughs> version of Horus. It starts with a fast swirling sax and trumpet line over a lower trombone, probably bass clarinet that busts out a huge riff to start. Then a syncopated bass and piano left-hand line makes sure we're firmly stuck in that new mode that we're listening to. Horn lines enter in layers in a cool arrangement. That's going to keep happening. Uh, it works into a really fun, skittish line over powerful trombone blasts and rhythm hits. Uh, we get our first bass clarinet solo from Marcus. The rhythm changing up underneath including uh, driving swing feel passages in there. He's got lots of complex figures, hinting at interesting harmonies in his lines, and he blows with a real fire. Uh, the horns come in to feed his solo, breaking it up with a triplet feel. His solo ending is really outrageous and outside of the box of what you're going to expect. Norris is next on trumpet. 
He starts with rhythmically precise and agile lines before he gets into some hard swinging. He's a very powerful player, shows off his high register as well as creative ideas, surfing through the thick chords and modal ideas. Uh, the horn arrangement comes back with cool topsy-turvy lines, alternating with some drum work from Kennedy, who continues with a solo over the ostinato bass and piano line. We get another round of the melody and the horns, and then trading off of sax, trumpet, and trombone solo lines. A final horn arrangement section with more surprises intense to the end. Very cool piece to start out. Mm. Track three, The Hive. And this is supposed to create an atmosphere of this, the bustling city of Cairo. Trilling muted trumpet over shifting syncopated woodlines uh, creates a tense feeling at the start. A mysterious bass clarinet and trombone unison melody line emerges over bass and left-hand piano counter figures. The other horns get a more connected, arranged theme on top, and it works along with some more fun trills passed around and very close sax harmonies creating tension. Ferber emerges with a trombone solo over nice drum fills from Kennedy. Bass clarinet has counterline going, and Davis outlines the harmonies with just enough piano chords uh, synced with the bass. Ferber keeps the ideas going with lots of different rhythms and figures. The trilling horns come in for the ending. I think it's Russell Kirk, just going on what I know of his sound, is next for an alto sax solo, interrupted in a good way uh, more <laughs> than once by this wood bass and bass clarinet line that hmm. sort of uh, breaks things up. Uh, There's some soft horn backing lines underneath. The sax gets some really good tonal intensity and push here. The trilling saxes and a transition horn arrangement come next. There's a new softer build-up section featuring Norris's trumpet into the more unstable trilling and some tightly harmonized sax lines into a final mellow minor chord with a few sprinkles from Xavier Davis. Very creative horn arrangement on this tune. Exciting. Hmm. The excitement continues with track four, the Cairo Street Ride, a bass and bass clarinet line syncopated and full of anticipation (laughs) the gaps really make you you know wonder what's coming next Uh, that starts out and kennedy joins in with tight drum work counter lines of trombone and sax then trumpet gets stacked on top the next strain has this really cool trombone slowly sliding changing pitches that remind you of like an engine revving up You know, you're going on your ride here. There's more cool horn arrangement with interplay between the line lines that works through a section into a really grooving bass solo from Jeff Reed. It's melodic, but super tight rhythmically. There are little horn additions along the way. Great drumming from Kennedy. Uh, then we get a tenor sax solo from Tardy with a great bass clarinet line from Marcus underneath that on the broken up rhythms. Tardy gets inspired and honks and squeaks it out. It's been getting funky and bluesy through Tardy's soulful blowing, but now it goes back to a really Egyptian kind of impression with the new arranged horn section. has a great rising trombone interval part that the other horns stack on and swing it back to a bluesy feel once again. Then we get the trombone engines with kind of car horn beeps again uh, in the horns and a final building section to a big finish. Uh, Lots of fun. Hmm. Exciting. Track five, final days, a bass clarinet note and then Other horns stacking, including flute on this track, swell up. A big, fluffy, long trombone note repeats like a call in the desert, just 
you know, hanging out there while a piano and bass clarinet line work around it. The other horns get layered in softly, and a line of alternating notes in the saxes makes tension. A new melody line of trombone, trumpet, and flute rises up smoothly, leaving the flute fluttering far above. It's very lush and dense with rising figures building from the bass clarinet. The horns recede, leaving Marcus over the rhythm section for a gentle start of fluid solo lines. There's some nice bendy bass lines from Reed, and then the horns return to build the melody theme in layers again. The rising figures create some final tensions into some slowing chords that resolve into a rich major chord over Kennedy's cymbals. And we're going to finish it up with In the Valley, title track uh, number six, a bass clarinet riff answered by thick open fourths of hmm. sound. Uh, the saxes get a rhythmic riff and trombone and muted trumpet lines stack on top of that. It builds up and breaks into more motion with Kennedy's drumming. Uh, there are busy forward-moving horn lines with flute. An alto sax solo breaks out over the interesting changing harmonies underneath, and a kind of Latin groove forms in the bass, alternating sometimes with a more static feel over the harmonies that imply, you know, more modal kind of things. So get that nice transition with the rhythm and also where those harmonies change up. The sax is really soaring with runs, rhythmic licks. The groove dissipates over some bass notes and sparse piano from Davis, who gets a solo next. It's completely different character now. It's new, uh, lighter Latin-y groove that starts in the bass and drums. And Davis's solo is bursting with positive energy, uh, reaching lines and fun interval play. Uh, a new funky horn section comes in with great trombone and bass clarinet parts at a boisterous start before it smooths out and then turns into waves of sax figures uh, with Norris and a sax floating a theme on top. Norris adds the mute for a bit before opening it up again and working with the flute into the final section of the arrangement that has a lot of rhythmically complex lines and gets to float out on its own at the end a bit before everyone hits the final note. So it's a very engaging recording uh, with the Egyptian influences uh, in the harmonies. I was impressed by the great horn arrangements with all the counter lines and rich blends of different woodwinds. You got the bass clarinet different saxes, and the flute. Uh, the unique harmonies make for interesting solos, and all the soloists sound inspired. They play with passion. It's a tight rhythm section. My ear kept being drawn back to Kennedy's drumming. At Adult Music, here we love the bass clarinet. We do. And this is a very interesting setting and great playing compositions, arrangements from Marcus uh, to show off that instrument. Yeah, I like this a lot too. It's only six tracks on, and one of them is only thirty six seconds long. Yeah, but it's still it's a it's a good lengthy album. These yeah. are these are jams; they never get boring. I like this album a lot. It was adventurous. It's got its swing. It's got modal Arab harmony. It's got uplifting harmonies too. Exciting, well shaped solos. Uh, it's something. It's jazz, but it's a little different too. It's got this electricity generating sense of musicians surprising themselves by reaching for an unexpected goal. And actually reaching it too. Um, I I I love that. I kind of felt like I was along the ride with them. Yeah. This is highly highly recommended, probably on my list of best albums of the oh. year. But I don't know. I'm saying that a lot now. I'm gonna have to because I only get ten choices. You can choose the you know to right. choose the rest. You know. Yeah, it's a really good one. Exciting. So check that out. Yeah. Speaking of a uh, bass clarinet, by the way, I've heard that uh, everybody knows the Icelandic. You, I guess you'd call her a pop singer uh, Bjork. 
um, has a new album coming out, and she's going to be featuring a bass clarinet ensemble wow. for some of that record. And that means that automatically they have to hear it. Yeah, it's, it's an already, ensemble of bass clarinets. Yeah, uh, anything with a bass clarinet on it, I want to hear. Yeah. I want to hear multiple bass clarinets. I'll check it out. Yeah, sure. I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. So that's in the autumn. Oh. <laughs> no date yet. All right. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Episode 77. Lots of uh, interesting stuff on our world tour. We had our passports, but I don't think we really had our uh, phonetic dictionary. <laughs> we always, we always yeah. leave that behind. Yeah. So we did our best anyway with uh, yeah. explaining and pronouncing everything. Lots of interesting stuff here. A little bit uh, different from our usual focus, but it was a lot of fun and mm. an interesting week of listening. And now since we're face-to-face in the yeah. mountain lair. In the mountain lair. We're going to go off and uh, we're going to light the charcoal for some lamb chops. Oh, very cool. And then um, my always delicious <laughs> Italian sausage and peppers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, reminds yeah. me of home. Relax and listen to uh, some of the uh, possible upcoming music for future episodes. Yeah. Uh, that we'll be sharing with you. So, so what do you think? Next week we're going for like Latin because we, we did some. Spanish stuff today. We can do that. That's okay. I want to do that because we've got some big releases, uh, some okay. of which uh, we've been privileged to hear before they come out. Oh, nice. And so yeah. I want to- I know which uh, one you're talking about. Yeah, I want to uh, mm. take advantage of that. And, okay, I can uh, do a classical. I've got a few yeah. Spanish things, maybe not Latin. I've got a Latin American one, so I've got a Brazilian one. Yeah, so we'll okay, that'd be good. keep the Latin thing going with some uh, big name releases yeah. uh, next week. And um, after that- We'll see. There's just a lot of jazz coming out this summer anyway, so plenty of interesting things to get to. Maybe a piano-focused episode uh, after that, because there's some... Okay. Uh, my list of piano trio things. I, I could big. go to the end of the year at this point, and yet in October and November, there are going to be loads of new releases right. in classical music. Anyway, jazz, of course, too. By the way, yeah. um, if you're interested in always checking out new jazz music, be sure to come and check out our Facebook and follow us, because every day when I check the jazz listings i usually put the one or two of my favorite ones but i have no idea if or when those will work into an episode but there's right. a lot of really good stuff there so if you just want to add to your playlist of what's come out in the last day or two just check it out i'm always putting them up okay. there for I'll, people i'll check so. out some new classical things that aren't yeah. uh that we're not necessarily talking about right away if yeah. at all because there's some things they they just get kind of get crowded out because yep. there's so much and some yeah. of them are like the 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 big name composers I want to get some of them in but right. we, we've heard a lot of that music yeah. before so I don't do too much of it unless it's a yeah. performer we really like or something yeah. like that and when I get to the end of the month I'm gonna have to drop back and cut out you know I I have uh, June to August and June's yeah. gonna go away and. Yeah. Just not going to get to that. Uh, All right. We'd have to do it every day. <laughs> do a podcast every day. There's a lot of new Beethoven out. It's crazy. Oh. I don't know what it is. Hmm. Everybody's like, I mean, we're gonna, how many times are we going to hear these symphonies? But they're all interesting, I yeah. have to say. Thanks again to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And please do like, subscribe, write a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. Help us uh, expand our audience here. And this has been episode 77, and we'll see you again with some more Latin music in jazz, probably in classical too, for episode 78 next week. Mm -hmm.